the government will do it. Yeah, I, I actually uh, sought rescue in Christianity from what I saw in the sky, as uh, seeing what in the sky what can, I conceived of as an evil, an evil face, an evil deity or demiurge. That I wanted the reassurance that there was a benign deity more powerful, mm. and my priest actually said, you know, that perhaps I should become a Lutheran because I seemed to actually sense the presence of Satan. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from the actual Valus satellite to your brain hole. We are your personal dickheads uh, here to talk about a classic of Phil K. Dick's canon. Whether we like it or not, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Valus, uh, which I've got here my sci-fi masterworks edition. And we have I we have a special guest dickhead here today. We have a truant dickhead who will be joining us late. Ah, uh, yes, the vintage edition. So uh, I am David Agronoff, your host, uh, co-host here today. I am a science fiction author, critic, and researcher. And I recently put out a book called Nightmare City that I recommend to people that um, was co-written with the guy who's late for the show, um, who will be joining us later, Anthony Trevino. And um, this book, we kind of, I, we pitched it as the wire. If Phil, uh, young Phil K. Dick and Clive Barker were on the writing staff. So nightmare city. And then I'm just going to put that back here. Uh, Langhorn J. Tweed. Tell them who you are. I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. And uh, joining us from the Bay Area, uh, uh, ready to rock out. He's going to play drums for us later, Mr. David Gill. Hey. Um, <laughs> uh, Gill, tell the folks who you are and what you do. Well, I'm an independent scholar studying Phil Dick uh, for the last 20 goddamn years or so. And I ran the Total Dickhead for a while, which is a blog, totaldickhead.com. And done a bunch of stuff. I got on today my my Phil Dick, uh, can you see this, my Phil Dick uh, Alice Cooper mashup tee from the OCs. Nice. So I'm empowered with that. Uh, and and Valis is, uh, I, I feel like my taco shirt doesn't match up. Oh, there you go. Look at that. <laughs> Indiana University. Go. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I'm here to, to defend the uh, supposition that uh, Valis is Phil Dick's High Watermark's best novel he wrote. All right. Well, wow. 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 Yeah. You're... I know, right? Don't at me. <laughs> well, um, it, if you recognize, if you're a longtime listener, viewer of the Dickheads, you will recognize Mr. Gill because he is, this is his third appearance on the show. Hey. Yeah. He was with us for We Can Build You. And also, I did a separate uh, interview where we just chatted. Uh, Gill is one of our favorite guests. And we're always happy to have him around to talk about um, Philip K. Dick. And so we're going to start like we always do with the Philip K. Dick news. And uh, he's still not with us. So that's the first thing. So he hasn't come back. Not yet. Um, but um, it is a death that is the first piece of news, which is 
the death of Ray Nelson at 91 years old, who we covered on this podcast before as the co-author of the Ganymede Takeover, the first person to co-author a book of two to co-write a book with Phil uh, before Roger Zelazny, although I think Roger Zelazny and Phil's book was started I think Deus Irie was started before Ganymede. Yeah, didn't it take like 14 years for them to write that thing or something? Well, yeah, I think it took 14 years to just get the time set aside for Roger to do it. I don't think it took him that long when he actually well, said to actually write it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ray Nelson was important. Uh, Mr. Gill, do you want to give a thumbnail of, of of the relationship that Ray Nelson and, and Phil had? Yeah, well, Ray Nelson's a Berkeley head. So uh, they came up together. It's unclear whether they went to school together. There's some. Um, uh, yeah, what is, what is up with that? that? I mean, but who cares? I think they went to school together. They were chums. They're weirdos. Ray Nelson is rumored to have invented the propeller beanie. Uh, and he was a science fictioner in his own right. Uh, his story, which is called what, David? Uh, eight o'clock in the morning. Eight o'clock in the morning became they live under John Carpenter's able hand. Yes. Yeah. And if you want more information before this episode comes out, there's two things that will be happening. One is I interviewed Ray's son, Walter Nelson, about Ray Nelson, which will be in the podcast feed. Now, one thing to note is that our bonus episodes are not on the main feed. So if you use Apple Podcasts, It'll be in the PKD Heads bonus um, episodes, which is a separate thread or a separate. Um, you have to subscribe to that separately. But also Ray Nelson's um, uh, celebration of life will be February 2023, I think the 16th um, at the Unitarian Church in Berkeley. So that will have happened by the time this episode comes out. But um you know, uh, Ray Nelson was one of Phil's really good friends. Um, and we go into this a little bit in the interview, but there are theories out there. For example, that Ray Nelson did the final edits on the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge because Phil claimed he was too terrified to read it again. And yeah, I think we, that means he proofed the galleys. That's, yeah, that's the way the I that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I met Ray Nelson 20 some odd years ago at a Berkeley screening of the documentary, The Gospel According to Philip K. Dick. Mm. And even then, as a young greenhorn, I was convinced I was going to write a biography of Phil Dick, which 20 years later, I still haven't written. Uh, <laughs> and I went up to Ray Nelson, I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'd like, I'm going to write a biography of Phil Dick one day. And he said, can't be done. Never told the same story twice to two different people. <laughs> and uh, that's proven to be a fairly accurate story. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, file that away as a W for uh, Ray Nelson. He was, uh, he was correct on that. <laughs> and if people haven't read the story, uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, that became They Live, it's a much darker story than the, the movie. And it's very good. And you can, there's like 18 versions on YouTube read by audio narrators. Uh, and they're like, I think a lot of people use it as a sample because it's a very short, very short and effective story. Hmm. But it's out there. Um, and, uh, but Ray Nelson was very important to, to, to Phil 
and to his life and most of the people who were his friends uh, all said Ray was a really great guy. He also, one thing we should note on Ray Nelson, the inspiration for a very important character in uh, Phil's canon, which Roy Batty in uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was um, allegedly uh, based on him, which we had fun talking about that in the interview with his son. So they describe him as disheveled and having like stains all over his shirt. (laughs) That's the the thing that makes him like Ray Nelson is what I could get from reading it. (laughs) Well, one thing that's interesting, if you listen to the interview, he talks about his writing room. That was a, it was an addition on their house. Um, and they called it the ivory tower because you had to go up into the, and I, in, in one of those documentaries that the interview with Ray Nelson is shot, I think it's the penultimate truth documentary is shot in inside the ivory tower and you can see what a crazy uh, amazing looking office full of papers and things and his son is still going through those so all right all right let's move on let's move on <laughs> all right uh ray delson uh, uh 91 years old so yeah all right so the next um piece of philip k dick news that i think was important is that the new york times um, did an article that was in the Sunday book section as a primer on Philip K. Dick novels. Really? And yeah, in um October of this year, and it's interesting because it's a lot of Ubik and Man in the High Castle. So um, clearly they should. There's two people at least on this. Um video call who might have been a better person to write it, but you know, know, New York times ain't calling us. So, uh, but it's interesting. Did anybody else look at that? Yeah, I went through it. I thought it was a pretty good, you know, I mean, it was not a, it's not a deep, no deep cuts, but I thought it was a pretty good way to, to introduce Dick. And the idea that, you know, he's in the New York times, so you ought to read him and take him seriously is certainly a nice boon. Yeah. Yeah. That's about what I thought about it. Yeah. Now, the last thing was going to seem self-serving for two of us. <laughs> However, if this was anybody else who wrote these articles, I, we would be mentioning them anyways. But uh, both Gil and I published articles with Tor.com on Philip K. Dick-related uh, themes. Um, and uh, David Gill's uh, article, Within You, Without You, Philip, and Jane Dick, do you want to tell everybody about this article that you wrote real quick? Well, I was inspired by the news that Charlize Theron is working with, uh, God, I can't remember his name, the director of Children of Men. Alfonso Corazon? Corazon, something Wrong. like that. And Wrong. they are developing, they're developing a project based on Phil's sister, twin sister, who died at six weeks of age. And the pitch is that I guess Charlize Theron is going to play the sister who's in some universe where she survived, and she's always getting her crazy brother out of these jams and pickles, <laughs> uh, which sounds kind of amazing. I'm, I'm it there does for sound it. good. <laughs> uh, and so I went for a tour. I decided to go back and basically collect all, all that we knew about uh, Phil and his sister and really his lifelong obsession uh, with with her and twins, which shows up in Valis as this, as that sort of cosmic twin, uh, with that one of them died and all of that. So, uh, it's a really nice collection of 
both what we know biographically and then how he wove the theme of twins into his fiction. Yeah. Also on there is uh, the article I wrote. Um, and my article was on the Philip K. Dick themes in the Apple TV TV series Severance directed by Ben Stiller, which is my favorite non-Star Trek show of last year um, altogether. And um, it's collectively the show that uh, Carrie and I most enjoyed together um, was Severance. Uh, we quote Severance quite often because it's a excellent satire of office life and um you know carrie is fond of saying talking about her job saying that's some severance bullshit right there (laughs) Uh, (laughs) right and uh so it's really great um you know like the whole show is about this uh about a office where you're your home life and your office life are separated by a chip in your brain. So you don't know about your home life and your office life doesn't know about the opposite. And everything in the office is all designed around, you know, crunching numbers and earning a waffle party. When the trailer for the series came out, it immediately made me think of Philip K. Dick, obviously because of the memory manipulation. And so when the series was over, I got the idea that, it would be a good way to break down like all the themes. Um, and it's a very long article and I reference about maybe two dozen, maybe 30 different Philip K. Dick novels in one article. (laughs) So anything about Philip K. Dick on the tour website is, as the hub of modern science fiction is good. So anyways, I hope people, if they haven't checked out those articles, will check out those articles. So, um, but that's it for the Philip K. Dick news. So uh, we're going to get to talking about this book that was published in the year 1981. David, what was happening in the year 1981 <laughs> other than me going to a chocolate factory? <laughs> well, apparently uh, Langhorn went to a chocolate factory. Um, well... Oh, that's funny because you know when we started this show and we were doing the what was happening in 1955 this is like really where we're getting to the point where i actually can remember what was happening that's right so um 1981 was the year the aids virus was identified it was the end of the iran hostage crisis uh post-it notes were invented Mm -hmm. uh and uh i know you're all very happy about that. Um, there was, was the beginning of Reagan, the Reagan era. I mean, how how joyful was that? Exactly. All? And punk rock was never the same. Uh, <laughs> Anwar Sadat was assassinated. Ooh, and ooh. when Phil Dick heard that Anwar Sadat had been assassinated, crushed up a Coke can and cut his arm with the edge, with the sharp edge. This is uh, because Rickman, Greg Rickman, went to interview him around that time, and Phil had his arm was all cut up. He said, what happened? And in the shock and pain of hearing about that assassination, he basically did a kind of cutting, which is pretty gnarly. Anyway, I'm going to add that to the tidbit, to the the pile there. 
That's why we got you here. That's right. It's my job. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and the first flight of of uh, the space shuttle. And, of course, the most interesting thing of 1981 that everyone is so excited to talk about, the royal wedding, right? <laughs> uh, but, anyways, yeah, that was 1981. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I mean, I was in first grade, so I remember a little bit about 1981. But, uh, yeah, so the Vallis incident. Um, now, we've already talked about the Vallis incident, and we'll, of course, talk a little bit about the inciting incident that happened to start this whole thing in 1974. But we already covered it, and that episode is with Bill Cyril. Uh, Tessa Dick and Ted Hand and um, talking about the actual incident that happened. And so unless it relates directly to the novel, we're not going to drill deep uh, on the the actual incident. We will, of course, because he's writing about it. But um, and then there's two aspects that we need to get into that we didn't dive into too deep in the Vallis incident episode but for those who don't know that was um march 9th or march 18th through the 20th of 1974 and i flexed on this before but i was born march 19th so when you know which uh tessa made a joke that i have valis rising in my uh, astrological sign um and then uh we, so that's when that happened and he was living in Orange County, uh, specifically in Santa Ana. Um, uh, it's a five-minute – his apartment building is still there, and it's a five-minute walk from the train station. So Did you get the picture? To... I sent you a picture of it. You want, yeah, you want to I've got, yeah, I've got the picture. Uh, let me pull that up. Um, yeah, there it is. And this is that, from uh, Air Davis's book. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's about mystical places in California. It's a coffee table book. Really? Yeah, it's really good. I'll get I'll get the name of it for you. Yeah, and so just a thumbnail of what happened there at the top of the steps. There is that um, Phil had uh, had a tooth removed and was waiting for a delivery of pain meds because. They were going to have the pharmacy was delivering them. And when they showed up, there was um, a sticker on the window of the door. And when the woman showed up with it, she allegedly had a fish, Jesus fish pendant on. And the way Phil told the story to most people was that uh, the light reflected off the fish pendant. But Tessa says it was the sticker in the window of the door. And when the light reflected, that was when Phil claimed the pink laser beam from with all the information of from God was downloaded into his brain. Wait, so he was all hopped up on sodium pentothal at that time? Yeah. Yep. You didn't know that? And and he's saying that he was had his wisdom teeth removed. Who has their wisdom teeth removed in their forties? 
Yeah, right? If it, right. you're in your 40s, you should. So what you've got to get, this is a really important point I want to be making throughout our broadcast today, is that Phil Dick is shaping the narrative of what happened to him in order to make it both a good story as fiction and convincing to people, ultimately to buy into his experiences. And I really believe that, yeah. the novel is structured rhetorically to convince you that what happened to him was real. Right, right. So... Uh, so here at the top of the stairs, this is where it all kind of started. <laughs> um, and so we're, we're going to get into the writing and publication history of everything that went that went on with this. But what we do know is, is that through this era, there was a lot of people who thought that Phil had slowed down writing fiction. And that is mostly because he was writing his exegesis, which was the... Um, you know, the religious thoughts and teachings that he, that kind of the spiritual revelation. Now, if you talk to the people in Phil's life, right, depending upon where they come from at, in their views, like if you talk to Ray Nelson, who was an atheist, right, and his friend, and Phil would kind of shape the story for Ray, like to, to be less, a little less God, you know, <laughs> when he talked about it than he would if he talked to Bill Cyril, who was a very spiritual person. So if you talk to Bill, it, as we did in our episode, he sees it as a genuine religious experience, that this is normal, that people throughout history have had these revelations, and that Phil is just the latest person who has had this kind of spiritual revelation. He just happened to be a science fiction writer. He just happened to be this person, but he's had this genuine thing now if you talk to ray nelson he might have told you he was a prankster or that he liked to tell these kinds of stories or he was creating this novel and he was doing he was making this story up this way now who's to say what's right or what's wrong or what's true like there's a certain degree when i did the Vallis when i did the Vallis incident episode i made the decision that i was going to take it on face value as to what Phil said, right? But right. You've, got, you've got three skeptics here. So just know that this episode is going to be heavily skewed towards skepticism of the Vallis incident, that we see it more as he was telling a story. It's fiction, yeah. Well, I think something happened to him, and I think something happened to him that he really wanted to believe was a mystical experience. And uh, so that's that's the way I think to frame it is that that it's he's not made up out of whole cloth, you know. Right. I I know um, what you're saying that he is he was inviting that kind of experience. So yeah, and it's important. So he I think sort of made a, it happen, but it's a real experience to him. Well, he's oh he's cast every every experience in his life. He's cast multiple ways. I shouldn't say that all of the major events in his life. He told stories about theatrically right. varying the details varying the script telling it different versions that's just part of his style what what um cleo told me is that that was really a part of their identity as when they considered themselves beats living in the, in the beatniks living in berkeley that the basically the idea was there is no truth you're always embellishing anyway so why not take it to the extreme right all right. Now, one of the things that came out of this is that once he had this 
revelation or had this incident at um, the at the house. And I'm going to stop sharing that picture. I think we've shown yeah. it enough for our YouTube people. Um, is that over the next couple of years, he was writing various versions of his ideas that came to him during this. And those have been collected mostly into the exegesis and which, which David, you worked on part of the, um, you want to tell people your experience with the exegesis? Well, I like to say that I wrote the footnotes on the book that was a footnote in the life of the author who was himself a footnote in the history of science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) It's footnotes all the way down. On on footnotes. But but essentially the idea really spearheaded by Jonathan Lethem was that, that, uh, that people wanted to read the unexpurgated uh, ramblings of Phil Dick that he collected in um, this series of folders, and the the hit the you know there's no real serious way to un, to know the archaeology of what we're looking at. So it's very difficult to know when these folders uh, start and end and whether they're in the right order and all that kind of stuff. But it's a huge manuscript where you get the sense that dick was pathologically driven to write about what happened as a, a method to understand hmm. and um, and uh, and you know then the and the the exegesis i have it right here it's uh, it's beautiful if, if you're not if you're a dickhead and you haven't read it you should check it out from your library and see if you want it it's uh it's it's a, it's a challenge it's it's a wild ride um but the footnotes that uh me and a bunch of other uh uh, great dick scholars wrote a real boon and there's a lot of good stuff in here so it's uh it's definitely an interesting text that will be the finale episode of our podcast actually technically you guys are gonna read that thing man i i didn't i didn't know we were doing that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not a novel right <laughs> i guess we could technically get out of it if we wanted to <laughs> no we'll do we'll do something on it i'm sure I mean, I might not be involved, but uh, <laughs> we'll do something on it. Uh, so, there's an interesting undercurrent here. So is some of this philosophical and religious rambling uh, not as pleasurable to read as, as straight sci-fi for you guys? Yeah, yeah, no, not as interesting. <laughs> um, well, no, it depends, it depends on how it's written. I mean, the right. way the – at least the exegesis – Parts that we read in the novel were not very interesting to me. Oh, yeah. Why not? Uh, <laughs> Just curious. Well, we'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the novel yeah. more yeah. later. Okay. So so what ended up happening is he wrote how many pages? Like eight hundred pages of ex- the exegesis. It's around. Well, what it says in there is thousands of pages. Yeah, I found this part. Uh, this is super important to my whole point. In the exegesis, they have three different main parts to the way the book is published. These are just excerpts. We had to figure out kind of what to publish. So part three is folder nine, December 1978. I'm sure you can't read this. The footnote says you can put it closer and I could probably see it. OK, the footnote says, well, let me do it after I read it. The first six pages of folder nine consist of manuscript pages from Ballas. Coming thousands of pages into the exegesis, they cut like a knife. Where did this voice come from? One almost expects the handwriting to be different, but it isn't. Equally disconcerting is that in the midst of these passages that end up almost word for word in the published novel, 
Dick breaks into exegesis again to briefly explore one of his multiple time track models of 374. So the the narrative as it exists around this experience in the biography of Sutton's and in this exegesis is that Dick really struggled to hmm. fictionalize the experience of 2374. And right. he tried multiple times. He drafted Return to Valis System A or something like that, which ended up being Radio Free Album Youth comes out in 85. You'll read that. Eventually. Yeah, we'll, we'll get yeah. into um, that here in a little bit. Yeah, but the, uh, so, yeah but, that's the... Uh, so the, 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 the biography is that in, seven, in December of 78, Dick is freaking out. He owes a book to some publisher. He's Phantom. already been paid the advance. He's, he doesn't know what he's going to write. He's struggling to, to, to throw 2374 into the mix and make something that works as fiction out of it. And the, and the way the, the narrative is structured is, boom, like a bolt of lightning, suddenly in December 1978, he gets the idea and he can go forward. Sutton says this is where he developed the, the idea of splitting himself into two so that he could look at the experience. But that's wrong. He already wrote Radio Free Album Youth where he splits himself into two. Uh. So my, my point would be what no matter what happened, the narrative in his biography and in this text of the exegesis that we're supposed to understand is that suddenly, almost like a revelation, he was able By some to kind of epiphany. Throw this book together. Epiphany is the perfect word to use, right? And again, that as part of the narrative works to persuade us as readers that this is all real, right? Another important point to come to is like, okay, this guy had a revelation. What kind of a revelation takes six years and like multiple drafts of trying to figure it out <laughs> to like craft to set out it into the world? It doesn't seem like a revelation. <laughs> right. Well, it's an interesting revelation where it's important that Phil Dick himself is a great writer and a great communicator because then he can help, you know, he's the only one. Again, my point would be there's so much narcissism in this fantasy. Right. That oh, you yeah. are the chosen right. one by God and you're going to save the entire world from mm -hmm. going in, from being insane. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> that's really, really narcissistic. And that's key because I really feel like this era in Dick's life, he felt like a has been. He felt like a never was. He was uh, determined. But this is to more, be, more him propping yeah. himself up than anything else. Than that's that's part of I mean, that's really the one of what I think is the core which he does kind of talk about in the in the novel. Yeah. He does, and that's to his credit. Yeah, right? now, he's not now, pathological to the point of not getting it. But yeah. he's pathological in the sense that he inflates the bad side of himself constantly. There, but, there's you know, two. We'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later on. Yeah, we're gonna get into the writing more <laughs> of the of the writing of the of the books. Well, what else you got, David? But. We need to talk about Xerox, Xerox Missive, and Thomas. Oh, I do have a question about the exegesis. Is uh, is it uh, was it written in like loose leaf or was it in journals or you say <laughs> it was yes <laughs> started out typed. Okay, started it, out he was writing these letters to okay. this Claudia somebody Claudia Bush I think Claudia Bush yeah and he's collecting the the carbons for those in a separate file. Okay. And the way I read it is then he starts wanting to kind of riff on what he's writing to Claudia in its kind of own private notes, all typed. Okay. At some point, maybe a, a maybe a months or years into the process, he moves to handwritten. And uh, if still you loosely? look at the exegesis, you can still see loosely. the difference. They, they, it's the longhand, right? Yeah. So um, 
that's the real challenge is looking at the long hand and trying to figure out what the hell he's saying. Oh, wow. And, um, but it also seems it becomes more frenetic. It becomes more uh, like spastic for lack of a better word. Like he's just going, he's just, he's just going ham as my kids like yeah. to say. You know? <laughs> ham and biscuits. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's two things we need to talk about before we get into the writing and publication history, like sure. more intensely, which is um, the Xerox missive episode, which um, I know uh, uh, Gil wanted to talk about, which is that this happens when a letter postmarked, from Austria with no return address arrives at the apartment. And uh, okay, that one. Okay. Yeah, and um, it's mentioned in the novel, but this is this is a thing that Phil claims happened in real life, and that it, he was afraid that it had um, what he called die words in it that would immediately kill him when he read it. Uh, so he asked Tessa to read it, which is... Yeah, Tessa talks about this too, right? Yeah, yeah. This uh, They were big into the Manchurian Candidate. If you've never... If, I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen that. If you've never had it... Yeah, I've seen, I've, okay, I've seen so, both versions and, and like both of them. Fantastic. So, you, so for Phil, I mean, that was like a lifelong fear that after he saw that film, it really coalesced for him that the idea of like a piece of information, a secret word or whatever could be... The, the trigger, trigger yeah. Something, yeah. MK Ultra kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and um, so, so I don't know. I don't have a ton on this letter, other than that I just think it's a really important part of the story. That's separate. That the fact that he felt that this hap, you know, that this happened, that he was afraid of it. That you know, and then we'll talk about its role in the novel when we get there as a, as a part of the narrative. But um, just so people know, this was a, a, a this was a real thing. Real to life hit. event. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's and one of the things that makes Vallis a, a hard read for me is that you can't really separate the real life events from when if you know a lot about Phil. For me, it's impossible to separate these things that happen in real life. Now, the other thing that's really important, and this is almost more important to flow my tears, is Thomas, the Christian martyr from the first century, which is this character that um, that Phil like felt like was a real person or somebody he was in touch with or that he was communicating with through telling these stories. And, and initially I, thought it was Bishop Pike, right? His buddy, uh, the kind of. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And he talks about that in the yeah. exegesis. And then eventually it became this different personality, somebody who'd lived of a distant past and so forth. Yeah. And so, so Thomas is this Christian martyr character. And it, I, I have a question. I have a question real quick. Uh, what was uh, uh, Phil's tie to Hinduism and reincarnation, Buddhist? You know, oh, he's huge there. into the Bardo, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Really? Yeah. yeah, huge into it to the point where it's in Ubik and it's in a couple short stories. Obviously. Yeah, it's mentioned in those, but uh, I mean, the like he he goes deep into reincarnation in this novel, and I just I was curious as to like if he's trying to do this sort of Christian thing, which is definitely anti reincarnation. I don't think it's reincarnation. It's this stuff about how. Um, the pat like people from the past are like 
retro scribed into the DNA of like, our, you know, that in so, addition to the genetic uh, ancestry, we have a kind of a like a cultural genetic ancestry that's also coded into the DNA. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that's yeah. it's so it's not reincarnation. It's genetic like, memory um, and all that stuff. Exactly, information okay. transfer, something like um, but a not, more like not Lamarckian. So but he does write it as as reincarnation. It's in a sense, you know, he's yeah. writing like I was this person in the past. <laughs> that person is it. Well, yeah, you're right. It might might not be. I mean, maybe not I read the, it's that. It's not wrong. the sense of like I was born as Thomas and I lived his whole life. It's more like you but can that's kind a of person that's in my head. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, more like a genetic memory. Suddenly, I'm seeing through Thomas's eyes. I'm seeing Rome in 48 right, right, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so he kind of comes up with this idea, too, that Thomas is like a muse for him to be composing pieces like Flow My Tears or the Vallis Trilogy or whatever, and in, in, in a weird way. Like, and this is in real life? He's he's doing this? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. yep. And uh, Not just in the, in the novel. Yeah, this is, this, okay. is, um, this is something that he's kind of thinking and feeling you know mm-hmm. is, is is a thing that's going on um and let me see is a really our- important text is uh, the origin of consciousness uh in the breakdown of the bicameral mind by julian james uh which is all about like how primitive man had a kind of like um uh inner dialogue and mm-hmm. how one part, like one half of that dialogue was kind of ascribed to God. Really? And how if you, if you think about like what Phil Dick is doing here, it's sort it's sort of similar. Like his, he's endlessly having these sort of dialogues where he's like, do I think this? No, I think that. What about this? What about that? And it's a, <laughs> it's a bicameral, uh, interpersonal dialogue, dialectic. Right. Um, so the actual writing of this novel happened in October to November of 1978, pretty quick. Um, the last thing he worked on before this was the introductions for the best of Philip K. Dick collection. And then he would follow this up with Divine Invasion, which we will follow this up with. Um, and Valis System A was completed two years earlier, August 19th, 1976. That was sent to his agency, and that became Radio Free Albemuth. Oh, okay. And uh, but it was originally called Valis System A. And so are there are there four Valis books? Three. Yeah, the Radio Free Album Youth was never really probably supposed to be published since it it, it was rejected, right. and then he they was they uh, suggested a massive rewrite he didn't want to do. So, but so, Val, I mean, Album Youth would be the fourth. Valis book, right? It's not. I mean, it's a dra- It's a. I would read it as a draft of val, like a failed attempted Valis. Okay. Yeah. It's. A, I mean, it's a very different novel. It's a very interesting difference, but I don't think that it's. I don't think it was once it was rejected. I don't think Phil ever imagined it would be out there in his canon. Hmm. Yeah. Phil I, not wanting to publish a book sounds weird to me. Oh well, <laughs> but he didn't want to do the rewrite. He just wanted to write. He wanted to write Valis instead. Okay. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and the publication of um, he changed um, he did change the title though 
we know that he agreed to the title of Radio Free Album Booth because he didn't want to confuse it with Vallis because after Vallis was was a success, there was so Vallis was a, a success at at the time, yeah. For for well, sort oh. of <laughs> enough yeah. that he did a sequel to it. Well, that's true. Yeah, and hmm. once uh, Divine Invasions did okay, um, I believe that there was talk of radio free but he didn't like gil said he didn't want to do the rewrite and but he did agree to the title change before so because he didn't want to confuse it with valis um but it was originally titled valis system a um and so he had the contract much like gil said earlier he had the contract back to van vote like him trying to create like his own van vote kind of uh what, what's that? What's that novel that he really liked of Van Vogt? Null A. Null A. Is that no, he, he was no, trying to go for that? No, I don't think so. No, I just it's think in title in title, not in. Oh yeah, the A might have been a an homage. Yeah. Like a, yeah, like a nod to Van Vogt. A nod to it, yeah. And um, uh, he makes nods to uh, Van Vogt constantly in the outlines. By the way. Oh um, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, oh yeah, all the time. Uh, so yeah, just like as shorthand, um, like for in the outline for Zapgun, all the doppelganger characters. I didn't even know at first he was talking about doppelgangers, but he just kept calling them Null and then their character. Oh. And then yeah, I felt like a pretty big nerd when I figured out what he was doing. Um, <laughs> David, and, uh, you are a big nerd. Yes. Um, and the he as meant, are we all. Yes. Uh, so. In September of 78, before he started writing this, um, he had this contract for Bantam um, that uh, Russ Galen got him. And it was a fairly, he got a very big advance for this. And at the time, he had been spending so much time writing the exegesis that, you know, like Gil said, he didn't know what the hell to do. And then, you know, you already told that part of the story, Gil. So he, you know, got on fire with, you know, figuring out that I'm going to write it this way. And, um, you know, he had this contract to fulfill. And Russ Galen was his new agent who had gotten lots of really good deals for his back catalog, but he hadn't done anything new. And so he felt a lot of pressure to do this. Right. And uh, but a little bit more on Valis System A. In the summer of 1976, Mark Hurst, then an editor at Bantam Books, um, he per- he bought Radio F- or Valis System A, and um, suggested the revisions on the phone. And at first, Dick agreed to do them, but then, like over time and over a succession of letters, just kept kind of like not liking the idea of doing any revisions. Those revisions never actually happened, okay? So, but he did refer to the research he was doing in multiple letters, and he mentions it, I believe, in the exegesis, right, Gil? Like, he mentions, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um... So is the... I'm I'm still confused. Is the exegesis, like, a... Like, a a religious text, or is it a diary, or... Is yes. It a of both? <laughs> yeah, it's all of the above. Yeah. Is it really even weirder? When we were looking at the papers, there was a cover sheet 
where it said like the exegesis of Philip K. Dick and it had his address on it, just precisely how you would make a cover sheet if you were going to submit the manuscript to oh, the really? publisher. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he, still, he put Davis a cover sheet on his diary. Out by that. <laughs> yeah. Who, who puts a cover sheet on their diary? <laughs> well, and then the other thing is, like, t- uh, Tim Powers ran into him one night, and he was coming back. They lived in a similar building, and he's coming back from the incinerator, and like, hey, what were you doing? He's like, oh, I was just burning a bunch of the exegesis. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and even and even weirder than that, Tim Powers found the exegesis stack of papers, and he was worried that the family was or somebody was going to use them to argue that Phil Dick was non compass mentis for his for being in probate or whatever, and right. so. Um, Tim Powers hid the stack in like the bottom of a of a wastebasket so nobody would find it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, October seventy eight uh, is when he began writing. Uh, the actual Galen got the manuscript on November 29th uh, of seventy eight. Seventy eight, yeah. Uh, so we know that he basically wrote it. So that's how we know that he wrote it in October, November. Anthony, you missed it. We all got AIDS in uh, 1981. <laughs> yeah. And went to the royal wedding. Full-blown AIDS. Yeah. So. Um, Thank, <laughs> thanks for the offer, though, of, you know, potentially giving me AIDS, Larry. It's cool. <laughs> I'll pass. Yeah. All right. All right. Whatever. Um, so his interest... So another thing, too, is around that time he wrote an introduction to the Golden Man collection, and there's a brief piece on that story, Rug, which was his first ever sale. And he um, kind of wrote the the introduction to Rug kind of in the style of Valis. Wrote an introduction to a short story? Oh, all right. All right. Short story collection. In the collection. Okay, okay, the collection. (laughs) I mean, Gaiman, I've seen do... Uh, short introductions to each short story, which is kind of douchey in my opinion. Here's the book now, right here. Hardcover edition, baby. Nice. <laughs> nice. So I'm wondering what you guys, what your guess is. What do you think Mark Hurst from Bantam thought about Ballas <laughs> when it came in the mail, when the manuscript came to him? Do you think he was excited? Do you think he was like, wow, this is great, Phil? I'm glad we paid you a lot of money <laughs> for this. Um, yeah. it, being, it being Phil K. Dick, and I, I assume Phil K. Dick had that reputation of being weird and out there even when he was alive. So I assume that someone would be like, I don't really get this, but uh, all right, thanks. That's the well, kind of what I would think. Well, how about this? It's even worse. Because Mark Hurst, who made the deal, retired or left or went to another publisher. So it was an editor that inherited the project. Now, what do you imagine they felt, <laughs> right? Getting Well, but I mean, the first, the first then you're getting out of Valis are fucking amazing. Like, they pop. Like, they are, that's why I'm here to say this is Phil Dick's best writing. This is what he envisioned himself doing as a writer the way. It's so personal. It's so emotional. It's so it's hitting so hard about what's going on in these people's lives and how desperate they are. I'm yeah, but te- willing technically, to it's not like, very, it's not a very well put together novel. Uh, I mean, 
Yeah, see, we're, we're eventually going to argue about this. But what? I mean, the, to go through the first the first three or four chapters are are perfect. They're perfect I, I, in terms I, of, like, bringing I, you into the about story. the novel I really love. I love the uh, splitting of the characters and yeah. the and okay, the so, becoming real and all that. But, yeah. We'll, we'll get to... We'll get to reviewing it, but Bantam was not super stoked because they expected okay. spaceships and pew pew, and you know. Uh, well, those people can suck a dick. I mean, I, I don't give a shit about what your expectations are. As Russ a- Galen was stoked. Russ Galen was stoked, and um, he he fought very hard for this what book. It's published now. Fuck those people. Yeah, it was originally dedicated to Tim Powers, but at the but because Russ Galen fought so hard for the book, he changed the dedication to Russ, and Tim's already got Do Android's Dream, so I'm sure he was fine. Um, of course, Tim Powers is David in the novel. Yes, well, yeah, yeah, we'll get to all the. I, I'm that. very Sorry. interested as to who's who. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, we, I we have a whole part of that plan, so um, we don't yeah. have much time, David. So you better speed it up. Okay. So, um, basically, so then, um, so he said, um, I thought you, okay, so, sorry, you confused me for a second. So, Galen fought for it, it got published, uh, Bantam eventually did, you know, get, give him everything he wanted, but that was mostly because of the fight from Russ Galen. So that was important. Make a joke about Bantam not being his publisher in the in the novel? Yes. Yeah, in the they because the couple asks him, like, who's your publisher? Isn't it Bantam? And he's like, no, double day. <laughs> he's he just lies about it. Right. Um so we do I have a few we have a few quick <laughs> we have a couple PKD quotes. Um Anthony, do you have the notes pulled up? I jettisoned the first version of Alice, which was a very conventional book. That version appears in the finished book as the movie. I cast around for a model that would bring something new into science fiction, and it occurred to me to go all the way back to the picaresque, picaresque, I say that picaresque. Word? novel and have my characters be picaroons, rogues, and write it in the first-person vernacular using a rather loose plot. I feel there's tremendous relevance in the picaresque novel at this time. Don Levy's The Ginger Man is one, so is The Adventures of Augie March by Saul Bellow. I see this as a protest form of the novel. Uh, I can't fucking remember how to pronounce that word. A repudiation. repudiation. A repudi- oh my god, you guys, what has happened to my brain in the last year? Huh? Of the more structured bourgeois novel that has been so popular. Yeah, so... Um... I think there he's trying to, you know, pump up what he's doing with the style of the novel. But, um, and I, I admit I've never heard of those other novels that he's talking about. So, um, I'm shocked. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So the next quote, uh, Anthony, here's the puzzle. Here's the puzzle of Valis. In Valis, I say, I know a madman who imagines what he saw. <clears throat> that he saw Christ. And I am that madman. But if I know that I am a madman, I know that in fact I did not see Christ. Therefore, I assert nothing about Christ. Or do I? Who can solve this puzzle? I say in fact only that I am mad. But if I say only that, then I have made no mad claim. I do not then say that I saw Christ. Therefore, I am not mad. And the regress begins again and continues forever. 
The reader must know on his own what has really been said, what has actually been asserted, but what is it? Does it have to do with Christ or only with myself? This paradox was known in antiquity. The the pre-Socratics propounded it. And that's where he's getting into the Gnostic ideas there at the end. And, um, yeah, which is, you know, he's doing the dance the that that Vallis does is he crazy is he not crazy and you know and that's one of the interesting things about Vallis is you know we had in my hometown we had a a, a guy that uh, electric fred who walked around town listening to static on his headphones and wrote in notebooks and a lot of times i think like Vallis is a published version of this kind of thing right um but what I like about this quote is it shows that Phil is, is aware of that, you know, he's aware, you know, to a certain degree that he had, that he's doing this. And there's only when one we more were working on the exegesis, you know, I, I've, I felt the same way. I'm reading this and I'm like, this is just stupid, crazy nuts. But these religious scholars that I was working with were like, oh, my God, he's solving the blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God, he's doing the blah, blah, blah. Like. This is may look like all, especially the religious ravings may look completely unhinged to us, but to people who've studied alchemy, occultism, right? You know, all this kind of stuff. It's no, I I, I assume that. Yeah, but I'm I'm a nihilist, so yeah. to me, the whole <laughs> oh, good luck with that. <laughs> all of it, all of it is just nonsense. Well, but it's but no, but it's meaning. If it has no specific granular meaning in terms of what the theory and philosophy, there is, is no about, meaning. <laughs> it means in the novel nobody can connect with horse lover fat because he's on some other shit. That's what's yeah. important about all of those parts of the text. Is like this guy is disconnected. Nobody can reach him. My favorite scene in the whole book is when he's dealing with Maurice the shrink. And right, he's like, right. you know, what about God? And he's like, well, you're not thinking about God. You're thinking about Yalderbroth. And the guy's like, what the hell are you talking are you about? Talking Have you ever read yeah, the Bible, right? I love Maurice. Yeah, Maurice well, he's my a favorite character. <laughs> um, yeah, but then, right? Until, the he, until he gets into that, you need God shit. But the and next therapist says to Horse Lover, well, you're the expert. You would know, yeah. right? <laughs> and that's all he needs to hear. Like to him, that's that's music to his ears because then that totally, you know, it, it legitimizes all of the stuff that Horse Lover is wondering about and so on. And yeah. So forth. Yeah. OK. All right. We have one more quote from from Phil and then uh, um, Anthony doesn't have to worry about reading anymore. <laughs> I really have no theory which will wrap this up. The book I'm working on for Bantam, Phallus, is really an account of this fictionalized. I assigned the experiences to a non-existent friend of mine, whom I call Nicholas Brady. And in the book, I'm a character under my own name. And I know Nicholas Brady, and he's having all these weird experiences. And I keep ripping them off to put them in a novel. I'm completely cold-blooded about it, and I'm deceiving Nicholas Brady by using the experiences in my novel. And I'm deceiving my publisher, who wants a fictional work. That's about Radio Free Album Youth. Yeah. That's a... I mean, doesn't everybody do that? (laughs) Rip off. Yeah, your- I, th- I think pretty much. Yeah, so that's what you're supposed to do as a novelist, as an author in general. So you rip off uh, an author of fiction, rips off reality and puts it in a false situation. I well, mean, and particularly like James Joyce and and you know F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest well, Joyce Hemingway. was a paper guy, so he he like basically translated reality. But you know, I mean the. 
it's it's just uh, I mean that's not anything different and Dick should have known that. Dick should have known what? That 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 he's just translating reality. Yeah. All right, so that's it for the writing and publication history. That means <coughs> uh, Mr. Tweed what? What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to remember how to do this shit. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. Here's a valid. I'm going to hit the bathroom. What? I'm okay. Gonna... Go. Yeah. Go for it. Go. 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 Smoke break. I'll be here doing the doing the, the thing with the stuff. Um, so, Vallis, Vast, uh, Albamuth, Vast Activating Intelligence System. That's the one. That's the one. Um, so the our book starts with our our narrator, who is not defined as Philip K. Dick, but uh, we all know it's Philip K. Dick. Uh, he he says there's two things that this guy I created shouldn't do, and that is uh, try to save people and smoke dope. No, what's the other one? Oh yeah, don't don't do smoke drugs. dope and don't, don't try do to save drugs. people, right? Don't do drugs, don't save people. Uh, and he he manages uh, to not do one, but really overdoes the other. Uh, so this is a Dick separates himself into two people right in the first chapter: horse lover fats and and or horse lover fat and Philip K. Dick. But he's well he's well aware. Greek, yeah, yeah. He's well aware that he's he's separated these two people, and so he tells the story of Horse Lover Fat. Uh, Horse Lover tries to save this girl in the beginning. I should bring that up so I know names. I believe that's Gloria. Gloria. He tries to save this girl, Gloria. Gloria dies, and Horse Lover Fat falls into this deep dark depression. And in order to get himself out of this deep dark depression. He has an epiphany from God, which is a laser beam that shoots into his head and gives him all kinds of information, such as knowing that his son has a gonad problem that needs to be fixed. And so he he gets his son's gonads fixed and he's like, oh, my God, God is real. And I don't I don't know how to comprehend this information that I've been given. So I've uh, I'm. Uh, gonna, you know what? I'm just gonna commit suicide. So he tries to commit suicide after his wife Beth leaves with that that gonad son, and he's like, "Oh man, gonad son's gone." So I'm gonna take a bunch of pills, sit in my car with the 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 engine running in the garage, and kill myself. Doesn't work. He ends up in the loony bin. And he only stays for a little while, and he makes fun of Ken Kesey for some reason while he's in there, which I'm 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 not sure why he uh, threw shade at Ken Kesey, but <laughs> that's that's a uh, that's all. I don't know, but I'm all about Gonad Son now. <laughs> so unfortunately, Gonad Son doesn't show up too much in the future. Uh, so he's talking to his friends. He straw mans. Philip K. Dick, the author, the narrator, strawmans his friend uh, Kevin, who is the only like legit atheist in the in the group. He's like, 
oh, you're only an atheist because you hate God. And he's like, yeah, of course I hate God because God is bad. And that makes him not an atheist, but whatever. Uh, so he's going through these, uh, these trials and tribulations. His friends are trying to save him. And uh, he goes to his shrink, and his shrink is like, uh, you're trying to get with this girl, Sherry, who has cancer and is going to die, and you know she's going to die, but you're trying to save her, which you know you can't do. So why are you doing it? And he says, because I have to, basically. I mean, that's the only reason I'm living. There has to be a reason to live. Reason that there has to be a point to life, which is horse lover fat's entire problem is believing there's has to be a reason to be alive. Um, a side note, I'm watching this show called uh, Alice in Borderland, and one character asked the other, like, you've, you've gone through all this shit, like, what 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 makes you go on? What what is the point to your existence? And he says, I don't need a point to have an existence. I don't need a point to live. There doesn't have to be a goal. There doesn't have to be anything. I survived just to survive. And I, uh, to me, that was beautiful. And that's something that horse lover fat can't see is that you can live just to live. Um, anyway. So he's searching for God and all these uh, nooks and crannies. They, His friend Kevin, the atheist, sees this movie that has all this shit that, that Horse Lover Fats has seen. And by this point, uh, Philip K. Dick and Horse Lover Fats have become two separate people. It's no longer like an imaginary person. He's a real guy to Philip K. Dick. And they go and see the movie, and Horse Lover is just... Uh, bent over backwards by seeing all these things that he's he's experienced in this movie and philip k dick who agrees with horse lover fats implicitly at every turn is like dude you're so you've been so proven right so they go and they meet with these alien people who are musicians who made the movie and then there's this old gross dude who is has all these uh like uh, cancerous growths on him and he's in a wheelchair and he's like, ah, we should do stuff. I'm good at music. And, uh, and then they go and meet the, uh, the fucking savior. Who's a two year old who, who speaks far too well. So uh, the, they talk to the two year old kid and then they, they go back and, and uh, actually Phil K. Dick recombines with fast. He becomes a whole person again. And then a couple of pages later, uh, the kid croaks because the the weird guy in the wheelchair like pokes her with a laser in her brain and she dies. So the savior's dead. Fats is back. Everybody's happy. That's it. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the characters and who's who because I think that's where we're. That really is very going. exciting stuff for me. Who's Kevin? That's what I want to know. K W Jeter. Yeah, K W Jeter, the author. Um, it's Jeter. that was the character I identified the most with. He goes, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, David is that's Maurice, but uh, Maurice was Jewish. So if you guys, this is my murder board of character <laughs> names for, and the best page to do this on is page twenty-eight and twenty-nine of the Sci-Fi Masterworks edition, because this is where the all the characters kind of come together. 
And so I've got certain Kevin is definitely KW Jeter. It's funny because I circled where he first says we and put Phil and pals. Um, By the way, uh, Jeter didn't want us to use his name in the exegesis. He was really pretty vociferous about that. So if you notice, I think it only says KW in there. Yeah. He's a weird dude. And he's, uh, uh, what, what, what Tim Powers told me is that, uh, Jeter's, uh, doesn't like the fact that he looks like he bought into it. Oh, and uh, the novel. or that he bought into it. Like, you know, yeah. that's the thing. Like Powers told me they had that, uh, Jeter showed him dreams that he had that also fit into the, to the stuff. But of course, I mean, you can have dreams without having a, you know, a psychic connection. You can just have a, you know, somebody tells you a bunch of weird stuff. And the yeah, you're going to dream about it. I mean, that makes sense. And Tim Powers, if you notice on page 29, he talks about walking to David's place. Um, Tim Powers lived in walking distance, like just like two blocks away from Phil at the time. And so that's one of the reasons why they talked often. That's one of the reasons why Tim Powers was able to save pages of the exegesis from the trash. And, and Powers is, like he is in the novel, deeply religious. Hmm. Yeah. Powers once told me that if he, he's Catholic, he said if Catholicism were ever proved wrong, he would become a Jew in a, in a millisecond. <laughs> um. Right. And so one of the things that's cool on page 29 is that you see you can see um, there's parts where uh, Phil is talking to Kevin and he says, I and it's like the the very deliberate delineation between horse lover and Phil on this page is very interesting. What so, page was that? Huh? What page was that? Page 29 of the Sci-Fi Masterworks edition. And I circled where he used I here because I thought it was curious. And it yeah, shows... It was. He doesn't do it that much until page 120 after yeah. that. So. Yeah, and then... Um, so Sherry, the woman that had cancer, was um, based on Doris Saunter, who was a friend of his, who uh, he met when she was dating Norman Spinrad, ironically enough. And then they became friends, and he wanted to he wanted to marry her at some point in the cancer thing when he and Tessa were broken up, and. They had already, they were already broken so, up. So Tessa is Beth, right? Tessa is Beth, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and uh, Gonad gets Christopher is the, uh, but uh, Gonad kid, Gonad kid, his son Christopher. Um, and then, uh, so he met Doris um, in 1972. That's when she was dating uh, Spinrad. Hey, that's the year we were born, David. No, I was born in 74. Nope. I was born in 72. Other David. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, there. <laughs> so, uh, 72 is when, um, and I think one of the things is Doris was one of the people who responded to, like, his religious talk because she was a serious catholic and she was a she was she helped distribute a magazine called the agitator which was a liberal left catholic newspaper and phil it, phil helped her excuse me what a liberal left catholic newspaper that's uh, yeah, oh man those were the day those were the days that yeah. was the cha- charity charity stuff 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. They when they actually did good works. Yeah. And they went and uh, passed out copies of the Agitator together at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, now this is all according to. In the Sutton biography, you can read about Doris on page 239 through, like, 40, 241. And she survived. She just died a few years ago. She lived through that cancer and, and lived all the way, I believe. Oh, so she like, didn't die. Huh? No, like no. 2015 or something like that. No, no. Or she, daughter, yeah. Yeah, she lived, un, unlike the character in the book. So, uh, but one of the things, too, is that... Um, I mean, she, so... So we she have to felt, assume that she wasn't like that character at all, right? Yeah, just that like, character was a total uh, cunt. I think is the word that we're. Yeah, that's right. Who was in love with her priest? Yeah, uh, who, who like French kissed a priest or something, and and okay, so hated everything. So with God. with Doris, um, the I think part advantage of, of the system, part of her thing that the real the real life. life Doris, not Sherry, the character, but the real life Doris felt like Phil um, didn't really like her, except that he wanted to take care of her, that he felt like some need to try and save her from her cancer. So part of one of the interesting but things. She was correct. I mean, right. yeah, <laughs> right. She was also friends with Tessa. And even though like Phil and Tessa were separated at the time, she like didn't like Phil like wanted to move in with her all this other stuff and but for a while she did live in the apartment next door to him in Santa Ana she rented out the apartment that was 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 well, okay. according to Tessa uh, in the interview that Anthony did I mean her and Phil were always close yes they even say, when they they stopped being married they were still close yeah. Not yeah. like not like in the novel where she just runs off to Sacramento, right? And um, oh, uh, Beth is is much more harshly treated than than or or fair, unfairly maligned if you're looking at the real life versus <laughs> what happens yeah. in the novel. Much like I think a lot of the characters are get a little bit of a you know you could tell where they're based on now. That's important to note because we know that when he outlines characters, like in the outline for Ubik, he usually will put three real life people and try to combine their traits. So, okay. Yeah. So even though Roy Batty is based on Ray Nelson, there's probably other aspects of it uh, of the character that come from other people, so on and so forth. So not a bad idea. I mean, not a bad way to make characters is combining other people into them. Yeah. He also wrote an, uh, an essay about... Um, that. Which, people, which essay? Uh, he wrote an essay called The Evolution of Vital Love, which I think was about... Um, Carry that one out. About, uh, about this character, Doris, or, or about the character, or the woman who Carrie. inspired. Yeah. And um, so... And uh, a really uh, Randall uh, Raiden, who's a, um, a collector, a Philip K. Dick collector, who fan of the listens to the show and everything, sent me a message at one point. Um, Shout out to Randall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Randall uh, bought. There's a little. There's a. There's a on page twenty of the novel. There's a, a little ceramic 
piece that was a gift. Um, Stephanie. Yeah, and he um, Randall has that actual ceramic piece. He bought really? it. Really? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. He bought it from. Who, who was uh, who was Stephanie? Do we know? Uh, Kathy Demuley, I think, was the real life person. Like the, the high school drug dealer. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And she was the one that was supposed to go with Phil to Vancouver, and at the last minute. Sold her a ticket probably for drugs. Hmm. Um, and But that little ceramic piece was hers. And years later, she sold it to Randall. So, like, and Randall Tessa sold it. Uh, if you, I actually, if you want to go to the Total Dickhead, there's an entry called Oho on sale at eBay. And it has a picture and it's all about when Tessa was selling it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so. The sections of this book that I have separated into themes are... Wait, you, you've got more people you haven't named yet. Oh, right. Who, what's, who the mo- what's the movie? Oh, the movie is uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Right. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Not, that blew their not. minds. <laughs> I thought it was like Xanadu or something. <laughs> no. No, the, mo- the real-life movie was Man Who Fell to Earth, which a lot of dickheads end up reading... Tevis because of this. So that one that Paul Williams made. What yeah. What was that one? Um, is there anybody I'm missing, Gil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a deep cut one that nobody gets. Brent Minnie is based on Brian Eno. Brent Minnie is the... Really? Is the, yes. The, well, I'm getting to it. Brent Minnie is, <laughs> is Brian Eno because he does that tape music thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other person is Norm Minnie. Norm Minnie worked with Phil Dick at the record store. Uh, he was fired for um, when, an, when, an, uh, when a woman came into the store and asked for a record by the Kunzweil Orchestra. Uh, Norm Minnie said, is that the all women's orchestra? And he was fired for that. He <laughs> eventually married Cleo Minnie after she divorced oh. Phil to... Uh, go with Anne in Point Reyes. Norm Minnie was a total badass. He was a he went to jail because he was protesting in the 50s. Cops threw a tear gas grenade into the crowd. He threw it back at him. And so he went to jail for that for some time. Real interesting guy. Died of cancer right around the time this novel was written. Tore Phil apart. He was close hmm. to to uh, to Cleo and Norm at that time. And the real interesting other story is that they had a daughter, Cleo and Norm, named Anne, who was about that age, who is absolutely convinced in real life she's that child in the novel and that oh, she was the inspiration for the cover art that, that, has her, that has a picture of a kid, a young, dark-haired girl on the cover. Most people think she's she's off her nut, but um, she seems to my mind to have a uh, a, uh, a good case to, to be like Phil to like to tell different narratives a lot. But I know <laughs> Anne Minnie quite well. She and I went to Harvard to talk about Phil in like 2010 or something like that. She's a real character. So anyway, that's the deep cut. Um, uh, another nice. person in there. And uh, Mother Goose is obviously did uh, uh, did you know do the music for. Uh, Man who fell to earth or whatever? I don't think so. Who did? Well, the musician, Mother Goose, is, I think, supposed to be like David Bowie, although yeah, he is. does mention David Bowie right. 
offhandedly yeah. around it. But um, I thought it was David Bowie, but yeah. Yeah. But and then, and that, so it's interesting. I don't think that they were ever able to connect with David Bowie the way that they were able to care, connect with Eric Lampton. All right. So the different themes of the book that I have are life events and autobiography, which we'll get to. We, Zebra. I, I think we talked about. <laughs> yeah, we've talked a lot about them. The, there's just a couple ones in the book that I want to specifically. Yeah. Zebra and the Pink Beam. Uh, yeah, we talked about, uh, well, not Zebra, but. Uh, God Stuff and then and then the Ego uh, and uh, Sloth, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Slothism or Sloth, Loth, uh, anyways. Solipsism. 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 I mean, oh, this is right. a totally solipsistic novel. Yeah. Yeah. It's one man inside his own head the whole time. So. <laughs> okay, so the first life event really in the book that gets a lot of of the page time is on page 11 we get a lot about the vancouver trip which we don't need to go deep into because we've talked a lot about the vancouver yeah trip. we've talked about that and if you don't know about the vancouver trip listen in to the early scanner darkly episode we talk a lot about it we don't need to go into it but it's there and it's one of the things, but I will say for me, when you're talking about how powerful the novel is in the beginning, uh, Gil, one of the reasons why it doesn't work for me is because this took me out of the novel completely because it's where I start to look and say, is this real? Is this not real? What is he saying here? Like, And it really took me out of the novel, and I think I liked the novel more when I read it not knowing about Phil's life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it ruins the novel to know yeah. to know what it, to know how it's based in the no, absolutely. Although you do get, I get a sense for what his, you know, how miserable he really was when he was working on all of that. That's that's what's real there. Is that it's a good, yeah, and so, thing of his. I don't, I, I don't think it it was ruined by knowing about him. It was, I for me, it was more enhanced. Okay, uh, because. Like, knowing where he came from and knowing that he's full of shit. I mean, I think the more you know Phil as a person, when you read about him, you know he's full of shit. So it helps to know that he's full of shit when he's doing this novel. Because, yeah. you know, nothing can be, I, I mean, taken as at face value, right? He tells you Horse Lover is full of shit. And then, and then, and that's where you're supposed to buy into it. But then the whole thing is horse lovers write about everything. Yeah. Like horse well, lover convinces. No, no, Evan, no. But only. But right, so, right, right. I, I, yeah. About the, the Freudian the slip for the, me is that Vallis is just one letter removed from valid. And it seems like a really <laughs> long treatise to get somebody to say, oh yeah, that was a, it's a valid. Well, I think one of the worst things about the novel is that, uh, you know, horse lover and Phil K. Dick agree. That's one right. of the worst things. He wins. Like, he wins over Philip K. Dick really quickly. Yeah, like, it's, that, uh, that if, much if familiar with with uh, Peter Schaefer's work, the uh, like Equus. Yeah. And Amadeus. It's all about that dichotomy, that that discordance between someone totally like out there, talented in some way, like different from everyone else, and someone that's ordinary. And we're, I, I felt like that's what was missing here was, like, Phil should have been ordinary and horse lover, like, way out there. And the, there would be a discordance there. But instead, 
it's Phil just agreeing with everything Horse Lover says. You know, it it, it really didn't it didn't drive a narrative. Yeah. But do you think that's because Horse Lover validates a lot of the thoughts that he was really conflicted by? Well, that's why that's why I call it solipsistic is because he's just agreeing with himself the whole time. Like, oh yeah, you're saying that thing. It must be true. <laughs> so. Like, to me, it's just someone stroking their own ego the whole time. I did say this was Dick's most navel-gazy novel in our group chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it really is. It, 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 yeah. Well, um, but, well, but so, you know, but, but in the, you know, in the, in the 1670s, 1800s, they thought navel-gazing was a ridiculous waste of time. Then Freud comes along, and they're like, you know what? If you actually yeah, reflect like, on yourself <laughs> and what you're doing, you might not be an asshole for the rest of your life, you know? So. Oh, absolutely. But I think that Dick does it to such an excessive point in this book that I got real tired of hearing about oh, it. That's interesting. <laughs> but I well, think for, for Adam, there's no doubt that the breaking into the tractates and the language from the exegesis is really off-putting to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to note that, you know, the anger that's being expressed towards religion here was in the zeitgeist at the time. And Dick was really flying in the face of conventional knowledge and really making himself, you know, I mean, Ursula Gwynn's wondering what happened to Phil Dick? Is he going crazy in Southern California? You know, people are like are, are going this guy's, you know, not. Not like, oh, it's kind of cute and wacky and weird. That's like, oh, this guy's lost it. <laughs> this guy has you know? some, some problems. Um, so that's a really interesting – I mean, so if ultimately it's about ego and there's this way in which this is going to enri enrich himself, make himself more popular, more powerful, ass backwards. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, well, so and like, I think going back to what David was saying about the first, for me, the, this is the first time I've ever read this book. And I think that my enjoyment of it, it actually did come in the middle to the rest of the book forward because the first 54 pages, 55 pages or so were rough. It was rough for me, mostly because I don't really care that much about philosophy and different religious terminology. Yeah, I, I'm so that curious realm, about but, that. Like, what, what is your so, disconnect with the... Uh philosophical so and religious and nothing outside of the fact that it's just not super interesting to me as a human being it, it's that simple so oh, a lot of the pages he's talking about going to a funeral and and going to his car and laying down because he couldn't bear it and how this this stupid guy who is an idiot put flowers on the grave and at least that was something yeah, you know, yeah. And was, was I mean, there's moments in the first 50. So, but. yeah, there's no I don't remember any philosophy in the first 50 pages. Oh, no, there's tons maybe. of the, uh, exegesis yeah, I, maybe. in there. And... I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, it's like it's you, like, you can't it's like ignore those words. I mean, it, <laughs> well, like but do you just... think it gets heavier throughout the book then, David? Gil, not David. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it starts off heavy and it kind of like. Um, it kind I think of it gets, it gets more problematic as more characters get involved. But I think it gets. Sorry, I should have. I should have clarified once my the movie More happens. heavy on the exegesis stuff. More heavy with the philosophy. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. It definitely does. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I don't. Know, maybe I'm just not in the right mind state to read this book. But it took me, like I said, it took me a while to get into it. And the second half, 
I think I enjoyed more because of where we're at in the podcast and because we've done this and because I've yeah, learned a lot yeah. about Dick through all of David's research. But that that, 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 you that moment when they, they go into the movie and figure out all that stuff like is, is legit and then it becomes an adventure, that was really exciting. Of course, he then well, he dipped that in the bud. <laughs> especially because <laughs> I, I agree with David, David um, Gill, I... I think you said this earlier. This this really feels like the book Dick has always wanted to write. It's it's an amazing blend of literature and science fiction. Whether or not it resonated with me is a kind of a moot point, but I do think it's the book he's always wanted to write. You put that better than I did. Thank you, Anthony. But I don't I don't think it's it's well written. Well, for for instance, I disagree. I had to take my mom to a doctor's appointment this week and we were waiting in the car and I was reading some of this and I just read her a couple of passages and she's read a bunch of this stuff. I made her read it and she's like, he's a really good writer. And it was all this stuff about, you know, <laughs> well, no, uh, it was about the Pyrrhic I, I think victories. Well, Once you start wanted. looking for Pyrrhic victories, that's oh, all I have that quote. Oh my it, God, David, man. Uh, Agronaut. Uh, yes. I think it's just not well plotted. Huh. I think it could be plotted way better. Like where the action actually makes sense and and things happen in an order that makes sense. Sure. Like to me, he, he like reneges on every promise throughout this whole. I have a question. He reneges on every promise. Okay. Does every book? But hold on, David. Does every does every book need a plot per se? Because well, at so least much one of his books should. This. <laughs> Well, I would argue it's plotted to convince you that all this stuff really happened. And that's yeah. the central concern I mean, the, the, of the plot and not pushing the story forward. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not it's not plotted as a story. It's plotted as I'm going to convince As a dialectic, basically. Yeah. It, I, well, mean, I would use not, the word rhetoric, right? It's designed yeah, to persuade you. It's rhetorical, you. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Which is, which is yeah, something yeah. that Dick is super afraid of, you know, like, you know, naturally afraid of as a, as a convention. So the part you're talking about, Gil, is on page 26 of the Sci-Fi Masterworks edition, and it's where he's talking about actually writing the exegesis. And he said, the exegesis fat, fat labored on month after month struck me as a pure victory, if there ever was one. In this case, an attempt by a beleaguered mind to make sense out of the inscrutable. And um, that's, you know, he, that's him talking about writing the exegesis. He also, obviously, page 23, talked about Christopher's illness. And he also goes into as far as life events, and then we can move into. To well, can we can we talk about Christopher's illness for a while? Like, isn't there something there? Like, yeah. So now that's what I want to know. Like, I, know I mean, obviously that. he didn't he didn't like just come up with a diagnosis. There had to be some background there. Tessa told me that the doctor had mentioned something beforehand. Yeah, yeah it wasn't something he came up with. It, it couldn't have been. Well. Um, yeah, it's, it, yeah. That Unless is God told him. Tessa talks about this in the Ballast. Right season. when he was high on sodium pentothal and seeing bright lights. No, this was a different time though. But what he, this was after. No, no, he, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was after, and then right, right. Um, <laughs> he supposedly told. That was the fish. He told her that he was speaking in uh, that that Christopher the baby was speaking in tongues, which is funny. Well, babies uh, always speak in tongues. I mean, that's sort like of they yeah. Do when they first the, talk. So one thing that's interesting too is that the doctor apparently, and this is in our Valis incident episode, so I don't want to go in too much. And it's okay. all there. 
But um, once they gave him the diagnosis, they said you can't let the baby cry because it'll strain him too much. So they had to keep uh, Christopher happy, like constantly for like two or three months. And Tessa said that she didn't sleep at all for like, for like a long time. And they, in her words, had one spoiled gonad kid, as you put it. (laughs) But um, my understanding is that that kid was always cranky and that the doctor told him it was a diaper rash. And that then at some point they took him back and then this hernia was discovered. Yeah. But I don't buy for a second that Phil Dick had a vision about it. And there's no corroborating evidence in anything that he did. Yeah, and it appears whether whether she either Tessa's playing along with it or like she corroborates a lot of the story and well, I mean uh, Tessa does uh, enjoy a good story. I mean she is yeah she's a storyteller now, and writer as well yeah, for liking a good story. So. Yeah, and we yeah and uh, so page uh, fifty four is where we have the. Um, science fiction talking to him and and the first mention of fake novels um which we have the android cried me a river yeah, novel, yeah right which um which is interesting because later in the novel he's just tra- he just goes to mentioning his own novels and not making up fake ones so yeah and, and like uh, footnoting them as well <laughs> which yeah is, and and so this which i this, found weird why would he footnote the uh the publication dates to, to corroborate it's a corroborating evidence <laughs> yeah so this whole the empire has ended thing um uh the divine madness of pkd has a lot more material on this it's page 136 of divine madness of pkd if you don't really want to look how many it. books do you have in front of you right now three <laughs> just the, just just sutton <laughs> divine madness and mel but my PK right. shelf right. is right here, so I can, <laughs> I can reach back if I need to. Um, but this whole um, it's and he mentions here it says astoundings plural instead of astounding magazine. Right, but right. I thought he, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, he makes reference to. I have no idea what you're talking about. Astoundings? No way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but so this is the idea that the science fiction has always been kind of communicating with him and the black iron prison concept, which it's funny because I know a lot of people are really into this, but that's this idea that, that there is this, well, anyways, the black iron prison is written about extensively in the divine madness. Um, I'm not a big fan of the theory, but I know some people really, what what is the theory? Oh, geez. Um, so the idea is that there is this, um, is this a Gnostic theory or is this a Phil, Phil K. Dick's? This is a Phil K. Dick thing. This is the idea that the Roman empire never ended, never ended that thing. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Time yeah. stopped progressing in 40 AD. Yeah, okay, that's that bullshit. All right, got it. That's that's all I need to hear. And yeah. <laughs> um, so, then... uh, David, I I, I want to know what's uh, what makes this the the best. Well, I think Anthony did it so well. It it is Dick's literary vision throughout his entire career to match and merge highbrow fiction literature 
and science fiction, to write about himself, to put himself on the page, to play with the fourth wall. And it's and it's so powerfully personal. I mean, and you get stuff into Android's Dream of Electric Sheep about Decker doesn't know this or doesn't know that, but that stuff about laying down in the car at the funeral is so or or uh, the collecting the the pills so that she could get so many so she could kill herself. I mean, that stuff right. is. He wanted to highly he wanted personal. to punch people with his emotional stuff, and he's. I I just think it's so good, and it and it. It so powerfully combines all of his energies. Now, and now do you do you think he carries that throughout the entire novel, or just in that first half? That's the problem. I, I have a hard time <laughs> once I get past page, chapter six, but I yeah. do think yeah. that the way he's able to then create a kind of a a, a MacGuffin, yeah, for lack of a better word, and to have right. the Richard right. Dawn Society going after it's not bad, and right. and it's his friends and all of that kind of stuff. It's uh. It's a, it's a, and I love, and I like, I really like the mother goose and the, and then, and that ending. I, I like it all. So you know, I really think it's the best. But uh, you know, I think three stigmata and androids are up there too. It's not a, it's not you know, bio. Blood. Yeah, it's not a far above. Yeah. some of his best, but yeah. Huh. I mean, I, I love some of the, the conventions in this. I love the splitting of the characters. Um, how he, he does treat them as himself for a while and then at a certain point in the book like uh fat gets it becomes its his own person and then is enveloped back into pkd and then once another tragedy happens boom he's right back there i thought that was amazing yeah like to me that was one of the best things in the novel is that he he creates this character that is him and then lets it be its own character and then kills that character, and then brings it back. It, it's it, it has just a, a, a wide range of of uh, of meanings in there. And I think that like a resurrection, you know, that kind of thing. And the the other thing I want to say is that it's not just about the granular details of spirituality. It's about the deep emotional needs that prompt them. Right. And so it's yeah. not just about like this belief system or that belief system, but how and why we need to believe. Right. And what that provides for us. I but think he, is, he is incredibly pedantic about it. I mean, I I sat here reading the book and looking up every name, yeah. every word, everything he he came up with and everything he said had some basis in yeah. in history, in reality. Like even calling Dionysus Diono Dionysus, yeah, right? I mean that has a basis. Stuff, yeah. I mean it's not, it's not just like saying it just to say it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Plus, if you're a literary scholar and you're interested in the life and work of an author, man, and they drop something like this in your lap, yeah, that's boy, basically oh yeah, boy. it's the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> yeah, you know? so there's no doubt I add some some enjoyment out of the utility of it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, as, totally. novel, I, as a novel, I, I will agree I with that. I just don't find it, it. It's so close to hitting, but it doesn't hit. That's interesting. Well, yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to note on page 99, there's, um, uh, I'd like to, I'm just going to read a quick part. Driving back to the modern two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in downtown Santa Ana, a full-security apartment with a deadbolt lock 
I love that building with an electric gate, underground parking, closed-circuited TV scanning of the main entrance. Card, magnetic card for the... Where he lived with Sherry next door. That is, if people want to go see it, it is uh, 408 East Civic Drive, apartment C1, which we showed the picture earlier. Um, and it's I was a, a half a mile away from it yesterday. Uh, were you? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was. And uh, yeah, you can take the. It's it's a five minute walk from the train station in Santa Ana, apparently. But where where were we when we went to Santa Ana? We were at that uh, that museum, and then we went to uh, get a meal at that. Uh, yeah, we we went by one of the other home. places he lived at, not that one. Was that was that was it close to there or? No, he's further is towards more towards the train station. But um, so he also talks about living on the top floor and looking down on all the poor people. And uh, the, the neighborhood is decidedly nicer these days than it was. <laughs> so there's that. And then, yeah, but it, it's totally not the apartment he wrote in the uh, in the uh, novel, because the uh, the apartment he wrote in the novel was like. A guarded building that is right on the street, right there. No, the the there's a courtyard there. So yeah, even if there's a courtyard, that's not like the uh, the high rise, uh, all glassed in building he wrote about in the novel, and secure uh, and security and all that stuff. Yeah, there's a plaza and there's a front gate. I've 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 looked looked at it on on maps online, so. It I, is the I one. don't know what that has to do with writing. Okay. What, anyway, what you saw doesn't make it reality in the novel. <laughs> okay. It so if you like want the novel, the condo where he died is the one that's being described in the novel with all this. A, it does case. sound yeah. So. So if people are interested, by the way, in the man who fell to earth stuff and the mother goose stuff, that's on 155 and 156 of the Masterworks edition. Um. Now there is another deep cut character mentioned. So is that the the when they go and watch the movie? Yes, yes, on one fifty five. Yeah, that, so that was the, to me that was the best part was the movie. Like I, I I loved the way they uh, he portrayed that movie. Uh, it was like all this intrigue and and like subliminal messages. I want to see a movie like that. I mean, we have movies that come close to that, like seven maybe or um i don't know um fight club you know things like that 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 like have those moments in them but this seemed like like a movie just chock full of of uh uh, subliminal messages and and little hints at what's really going on like i want to see that movie sure and it definitely wasn't the bowie the man who fell to earth (laughs) So on the page on page 168 where he mentions Do Androids Dream and Three Stigmata, there is also a deep cut there where they're talking about who's the producer, who's that producer friend of yours, the one at MGM, and he says Stan Jaffe. Yeah. As we recall, Stan Jaffe is the one who wrote the script for Do Androids Dream that he hated yeah. so much that he threatened to beat him up. Well, he uses a different name for him, right? Yeah. Um, well, he uses the same last name Jaffe, but. Uh, he he wasn't Stan Jaffe. Either. I thought it was Joffrey. Oh, okay. Yeah, it might be. 
Well, anyways, Actually, he's obviously have it making, in here somewhere. He's obviously making a reference to the guy who did the Do Androids Dream. Yeah, that's a script. good deep cut. That's nice. And then um, on the next page, there's a mention of the pink light on 169, by the way. And then I think on page 188, and that's the last of the character or, or a lot of the the life experiences is um, that's where he he like works his agent into it and starts talking about he says mr galen he, he makes a direct reference to galen his his agent on page 189 so um and as far as zebra and the pink laser beam the first time that's mentioned is page 21 of the novel um and that is yeah the first time he talks about like he said it was easy, he said, to describe the pink beam of light. That's the first time it's mentioned. Um, the pink beam of light gets a lot of details in The Divine Madness on one page 124, if people want to look into that. I, again, recommend that book. Uh, it's very good. Um, we should also mention that the pink beam experience is very similar to the experience of a guy named Jacob Burma, who lived in the 1600s. I'm reading really? from I'm reading from the uh, his Wikipedia here. Uh, uh, Burma had a number of mystical experiences through his life, culminating in a vision in 1600, as one day he focused his attention on the exquisite beauty of a beam of sunlight reflected in a pewter dish. He believed this vision revealed to him the spiritual structure of the world, as well as the relationship between God and man, and good and evil. At the time, he chose not to speak of his experience, openly preferring instead to continue his work and raise a family. So that's a that's a parallel that Dick is clearly drawn on as well. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of that guy. Okay, well the problem is his name it does it's, it's pronounced Burma, but it's spelled B O H M E. Jacob J A K O B B O H M E. Is he German? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he's he's profound influence on German idealism and German romanticism, and um, this is what Ted Ted Hans uh, scholarship is super into is like these alchem alchemy uh, connections to Dick and the occult and all this kind huh. of stuff. Um, so so they're the they're they're who turned me into the onto this stuff. Page seventy seven is where he defines Gnosticism. Um, yeah. That in Gnosticism, man belongs with God against the world. In the I, I, I can define Gnosticism. There's a stupid God, and then there's a God above that that's smart. That's it. <laughs> that's Gnosticism. And, uh, and it's not a fucking... You don't need to be a genius to understand it. But, like, if you're on Facebook or you're into some of these... There are lots of online groups that are Gnostic Christians that are using Phil Dick's stuff as their as their scriptures. As proofs of certain points and stuff like that. Well, uh, yeah, as documents in their own metaphysical searches or whatever. It's, it's well, wild. I, I, I want to say that Dick on page... Uh, same same uh, copy as yours, David. 172, page 172... Uh, Dick actually explains what he's doing in this whole novel right here. He says, Kevin Cop to uh, what Kevin Cop to was that all along he had taken it for granted that fat was simply crazy. He had seen the situation this way. Guilt and sorrow over Gloria's suicide had destroyed fat's mind. And he had 
never recovered. Beth was a tremendous bitch <laughs> and married to her out of and married to her out of desperation. Fat had become even more miserable. At last in 1974, he had totally lost it. Fat had begun a lurid schizophrenic episode to liven up his drab life. He had seen pretty colors and heard comforting words all generated out of his unconscious, which he had risen up and literally swapped, which had risen up and literally swamped him, wiping out his ego. In that psychotic state, Fat had flailed around, deriving great solace from his encounter with God. That's uh, basically him defining what this novel is about, is just yeah, some dude that, that freaked the fuck Kevin out. Is converted too. Yeah, well, he's... He's he's not only converting Kevin, but he's he's telling us that he's just a guy that freaked the fuck out. Yeah, but then but then I think Kevin comes around to maybe there's something to what Fat is saying, which is one of the reasons why Jetter probably didn't like, you know, because he probably <laughs> felt like he didn't come around. Um, so well, because the uh, I mean, it's it's buying into a delusion. You know, if you have a strong friend like that, that, that becomes deluded, inevitably people will glom onto that delusion. I mean, look at, he talks about it. Jonestown is exactly what he's talking about himself doing is becoming this, like I, I'm all fucked up and now you're all believing what I'm, what, what the, the delusion that, I I got from being fucked up, so. But Jeter comparing himself really, to Jonestown. But they really did go to the man who fell to Earth. I think Jeter and Powers first, and they were like, "Holy fuck, this is all that crazy shit that Phil Dick was telling us about." And then they and then they brought and they were like totally blown away. Like, wait a minute, there are three-eyed aliens in this thing. There is, like, a pot. There's, like, all this saran. There's, like, water and desert or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Confirmation bias is the obvious explanation, but, yeah. like, the thing about it is, like, it's not – they they, re they really did – they were, like – Well, let, let me tell you a story. In college, my friend wrote a story uh, about this guy that ends up in a virtual world, and he wakes up from that virtual world – and he has wires and stuff, and he's in this tank, and he's uh, he's got all these wires and stuff connected to him. Yep. And he pulls a and wire out of his. Your friend Bruce Sterling. Out of his dick, and uh, and it's uh, he he then goes on and has this adventure. It's uh, it's the same color scheme, the same exact scene that is in the Matrix. I mean, and it's. Like, this shit happens all the time. I wrote a script that has been copied a thousand times over the past couple of years about an evil Santa Claus. I mean, like, that shit happens all the time. It's not fucking... It, it's not magical. It's not magical. But when are you going to share the, that? But that's not the dialogue they were having. You haven't read that? They're like, oh, this shit happens all the time. We shouldn't flip out about it. They were like, holy cow, did you see all that shit in the movie that was straight out of this weird dude's ideas? Yeah. <laughs> I don't By the know. way, it started it pouring just that here. We're we're a more cynical. It's a more cynical time, and we don't like look at that kind of magic, you know, right. anymore. And maybe that's something we should appreciate about the novel is that it does hold that magic. 
you know, that magic of, of innocence. Right. Of, uh, like, it's not coincidence. There's meaning behind things. Um, well, look, page, uh, on another note, with Zebra, Zebra gets first mentioned on page 70. Let's get back to quotes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Come on, man. <laughs> Zebra gets mentioned on 78 and 79, which is um, the kind of the the creature or the thing that he's communicating with behind. The, well, to me, that, uh, I read that as the the higher god. The higher god, yeah. Uh, the, the Gnostic higher god. Right. And again, right? I'm going to bring the up Divine god. Madness. There's a lot of talk about zebra in this book. Um, a lot more, actually, than. Well, in, how does that how does that book uh, define the the zebra? Well, hold on, give me a second. Um, the zebra is the creature whose uh, habit is in the nature of concealing itself, right? That's the that's the whole thing about zebras. Yeah. Like it's it's a, it, it it's, conceals you never itself. find it. it doesn't show. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. more, the, the act of looking for it camouflages it. it. It affects humanity, it affects the world and the universe, but it doesn't like to be seen doing it. Yeah, or so. it's, or it's, I don't know about that, or it's like, I guess it is trying to, it is trying to override the shitty gods, uh, yeah. bad shit, bad programming. <laughs> yeah, right. So, in Divine Rationality, basically. In Divine Madness, it says, Dick increasingly detected a spiritual presence in his physical environment. He noticed one out of the corner of his eye and caught glimpses of an entity uh, observing him and Tessa. It camouflaged itself so as to blend with any surrounding, hence Dick's nickname for it, Zebra. In an exegesis entry describing Zebra, he writes, it can enter anything inanimate or inanimate, Animate or inanimate. In the latter, it takes it takes volition, volitional control of casual processes, mimicry, and camouflage. Sometimes zebra blended into inanimate objects. Dick told Tessa that the entity had a third eye in the middle of its forehead, but it remained closed. If the entity opened its third eye, Dick felt its enemies would detect it, would detect and kill it. Yeah. Characterized. As a false god, a humanoid life form, uh, Christ and the Holy Spirit. Zebra was par- paranoia turned inside out. Normal so, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the usual. <laughs> Your usual like thing that All you right, see. All right, so uh, Anthony has to go in a in a bit. We should get to final judgment just so we can make sure we do that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreement. Sure. Uh, I can push it to like three if that helps. That helps. Yeah, because I'm almost done with the stuff from the book. Okay. Um, <laughs> Can we just talk about the book? <laughs> it is. It's stuff from the book. Um, well, what do you got? Uh, page 205 of this edition is where he starts to get into science fictional concepts that, you know, kind of mirror Radio Free. And show and to me, oh, show, we, we haven't read Radio Free yet, so I'm I'm not gonna know what you're talking about. Well, I don't I haven't haven't read it yet either. But what so I'm what saying the fuck is, are we talking about it for? Because it's uh, because he mentions Album Muth. He mentions it. It's yeah. Right. He he says the planet, right? It's a planet or a race. That's a an inter system communications network 
It stretches between stars, connecting all the star systems with. But Albumuth- they, they say they're Albumuthians or something. Right, and that's why I was bringing it up because this okay. is where where it gets like more science fictional, and it's interesting because the reason why I wanted to bring it up is it kind of flies. It's actually not science fictional. It's actually they're they're Cyclops, which is a according to Dick is a misdefinition of the third eye is the single eye. So they're called Kyclops or something like that, but it's actually uh, the Greek myth of Cyclops. But in relation to what Gil was saying about how the book is engineered to make you believe in what he's laying down, right? Okay, okay. This is where I feel like he gets... A little bit weirder and so this is the only thing that i think kind of goes against that theory in my opinion oh i see but, i see what you're saying so because it does get a little trippy and weird and he is borrowing ideas from another book that he didn't think was going to get published at least i believe so because i haven't read it yet because i'm saving it for <laughs> podcast till we yeah till we have to read it till we have to read it but um it seems to me like he's just so, knowing that so Phil. You think he's he's actually uh, purposely making a reference to the other book? No, because I don't think, like Gil said, I don't think he thought it was ever going to get published. Because at this point, like he hadn't agreed to do the revisions, and and Bantam had basically said no to it until like. So you're saying that this section is in. I think he. I think he borrowed, the book or, he borrowed or, concepts from radio. Oh, I, oh, okay, okay. And put it here in this part, whereas it's a much bigger part of that story, if I'm correct. But I haven't read it yet, so right, right. <laughs> so it's just my theory. But he mentions it, and then therefore it. That's where you get into the issue of: is it a trilogy? Isn't it a trilogy? Was yeah, radio is free? There, is there a fourth? Yeah. Is radio oh. free? is Radio Free an actual part of a trilogy because he didn't really intend for it to be published at that point because he get, he'd given up on it being published. I still just can't see Dick like not wanting something he wrote to be published. I'm sure he was like, fine. He has like 15 books that shouldn't have been published. <laughs> so. Well, a lot of those came out after he died. But uh, no, <laughs> a lot of those came out because he needed money. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're well, yeah. Like I'm talking to you, crack in space. Yeah, well, cosmic puppets came out while he was alive. I'm gonna say it again for the eight hundredth time. <laughs> yeah, that was early days. He, he was he didn't know what he was doing. All right, so um, all right, I, I are crack in space. He knew what he was doing. He should have been, but crack in space was also written during the the December to April, December. 63 to april 64 where he wrote five books in like (laughs) that many months so in divorcepedia it says he quit uh he started doing uh amphetamines in 68 no 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 that's what it says in divorcepedia no cleo's uh cleo's uh, but he was doing yeah he was doing doing uh benzos and stuff like that in the in the early 60s 
Like, everybody did that shit in the early 60s. So. Uh, he was doing amphetamines from the mid-50s through 71. Because he was part of that whole beat scene, like yeah. you said. And the, the, beats, the beats loved the amphetamines. Um, December 63 to April 64 was his most prolific period, short and period. He was definitely high during those times. Right? Yeah, and he was moving in and out of the house with 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 Anne and back and forth to his mom's house in Berkeley. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he was like, he was yeah, he was he was high as a kite. Uh, <laughs> but but um, so anything else on? No, the, do we uh, do we think he was high doing any of this, or was he sober? No. So do we think he ever? Joint. Do we think he was ever sober? Like sober, sober. Yeah, he was sober for a lot of this. He was not yeah. on amphetamines after '72. His body couldn't handle him anymore. Okay. Okay. He 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 smoked an occasional joint. He did uh, he did mescaline once, but that's it. In the after the '60s. Yeah. So yeah. like most of us, he had his time doing drugs and then gave it up. Yeah, this is post Scanner Darkly, so yeah. But yeah. it's pretty clear he's got amphetamine psychosis, you know, from my perspective. Both William Gibson and I think he's got amphetamine psychosis. And the amphetamine psychosis is like the main argument of this book. This book is like 160 pages of its amphetamine psychosis. (laughs) Well, again, like notice how the how the thoughts are really narcissistic and like God's in touch with me, blah, blah, blah. But the but the flip side of that is, oh, my God, the Xerox missed They're going to come and kill me. This yeah. is what I wrote my master's thesis on, though, a paranoia, paranoia and narcissism are matched, right? If somebody's after me, I must be important enough for them to expend all these resources. Right, it, it, so it, so but it all boils down to narcissism, yeah. you know? Well, doesn't it for us sitting around on on a podcast on a, sa- a Sunday afternoon, sitting around pronouncing <laughs> our judgments on Phil Dick boil down to narcissism, too? Yes. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> But it's not it's not pathological. I I don't. Oh no, that's well, maybe not for some of us. (laughs) Absolutely pathological. (laughs) Yeah, come on, Larry. All right, I know it's not. At least it's not pathological. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so um, anything before final judgments on themes, ideas that you. I just have one thing, actually. Go, um, Anthony. Because just like I was saying earlier about really feeling like this is the book Dick always wanted to write, I also felt like he really encapsulated himself in this part on page 245 where he's having this conversation with Fat. Essentially, he's talking to himself, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> Go away, Fat, I said. Go to South America. Go back up to Sonoma and apply for residence at the Lamptons Commune, unless they've given up, which I doubt. Madness has its own dynamism. It just goes on. Getting to my feet, I walked over and stuck my hand against his chest. The girl is dead. Gloria's dead. Nothing will restore her. Sometimes I dream. I'll put that on your gravestone. I think that that really spoke to me of, like, the dichotomy of Dick and just how he spends his whole life essentially writing some of this brilliant surreal fiction but also kind of struggling with you know, how he sees the world and just being a, a, a person. And sometimes I get the impression he doesn't like all the daydreaming and all, like, being kind of haunted by writing. And I just thought that that really 
I know that that passage has really spoke to me as as being very clear about himself. Right. Really, what I'm trying to get at here. Oh, that's a really good quote. Yeah. And I looked, I didn't have that highlighted. So, yeah, good job. Um, I just want to say quickly before I do our final judgments, if you're a fan, you should listen to Sonic Youth's album Sister. It's all about, inspired by Phil Dick and this whole thing. It's got a song called Stereo Sanctity that even uses lyrics from the novel in, in, uh, in it. And it's a great, great album and a great connection. Like Sonic Youth has a bad album. Well, yeah, I know. That's I, my dream. That was one day to write a 33 and a third book about the the not the album sister and the connection to Phil Dick. Nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. I want to read. So that. I I did want to compare this a little bit to uh, the Great Gatsby. <laughs> okay. I feel like uh, I mean I compared it to Equus and and to Amadeus, but I also feel like there's a good comparison to uh, the Great Gatsby because it is sort of like a love letter. And, and also a hate letter to himself in, in the same way that, uh, you know, what's his face regards Gatsby yeah. the same way he regards horse lover fat. And that's, so that's a quick aside. Like um, it's all like, like we're all just narcissistically creating these worlds in a, in a fallen tomb world where nothing matters. Yeah. We will. Well, where we're also the greatest and nothing at all, you know? So it, it's really, sort of sort of he's doing he's doing that following that same pattern in this novel until he kills worst lover and the, the other one other important messiah is at the end of the novel here he's waiting for the the next messiah and uh, in like right before he died in 81 or 82 dick had another vision about this kid named tagor and it was a kid yeah. who lived in the third world, and he was all had chemical burns all over his body. It's a really deeply environmentally prescient thing. Mm. And he wrote what's called the Tagore letter about his vision, and he sent it out to all kinds of people, all like everybody on his contact list, and then some about how this is kids the savior, and this is what we need to do. It was, so a, it was a Rolodex back then. He did have a Rolodex <laughs> back then. So anyway, that's if if you're wondering, like if if at the end of the novel you're feeling a little bit of like, well, what happens next? What happens next is like, you know, a bunch of years later he has another vision and he thinks mm. he's got it, and then you know he dies. Or Phil had a stroke. <laughs> yeah, or Phil had a stroke, which is really yeah. what happened next. But um, yeah, that's too bad. I mean, in this novel he's talking about all these plans for the future. And we know for a fact that he dies the following year. Well, no, that's after it's published. He he wrote it in seven. Yeah, that, I mean that after it's published. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're the yeah. first time someone read this, they were like, "Oh man." Yeah. yeah. Well, they they wouldn't know the first time, but. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, to me, I had that sadness of of knowing that the year this was published, he would die. You know, just mere months later. Yeah. Well, we're definitely getting towards the end, so, um, and, uh, you know, but he did have... Now, is this the last one that was published before he died? No, I think Divine Invasion came out. Divine Invasion? Okay. Yeah, and then he wrote the Timothy... I'm pretty sure he wrote all of them before he died. Yeah, I'm pretty well, sure he did Well, except for the third Vallis novel, which would be The Owl in Daylight. <laughs> Transmigration doesn't fit in the trilogy... And we're waiting for the third book of the trilogy. <laughs> That's my right. take. Yikes. 
Yeah. So um, here's the thing. Uh, since Anthony needs to go, let's get his final judgments and then we can. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Finish up. But uh, yeah, Anthony, what's your final judgment on Dallas? Judge. I think I was judge. Yeah. I think I was pretty. I've been pretty open about how I felt about this book. I, I think it is absolutely the book Dick has always wanted to write. I think it blends everything I've seen him do well in different books into one book. Did it work for me? Yeah, those first fifty-four, fifty-five pages are, were really rough for me to get through for some reason. So, but with that said, uh, I, I, oh, like a lot of things, you know, you see a movie for the first time, or you you hear a song or a whole album, and you're like, what the fuck is this i don't like this and then you you start thinking about it and then you revisit it and you're like actually that's actually pretty pretty good it's like it's like me listening to mr bungle for the first time and i was like <laughs> this is all noise and then you start thinking about other aspects of the musicianship and what really worked and what they're actually going for and um i, I think uh i I'm of two minds about it. The, the the me that just wants to read a book and enjoy it is like, this was not interesting or like I, it was just a slog. But taking a step back and looking at it from a different angle and all the stuff we've kind of read and gone over since we started this podcast, I think it's probably like a four for me. Wow. Wow. With one exception. With one exception. The whole, like, being bitter about somebody for dying on you from cancer and being mad at them about it really, really irritated me. Um, and I, I, I've been pretty open on the show, too, that I, I think Dick has a lot of issues with women that he works out through his fiction. And I texted you guys when I was, like, halfway through this going, I, I just feel like Dick was sitting there going, I can't believe that bitch died to spite me. <laughs> and... <laughs> which, which, Which is was absolutely fiction. not true, but it was fiction as well. It didn't even happen, but he still wrote yeah. it that way. <laughs> but but I think with what he was trying to do with this book and what I know of him as a writer, I think it's pretty damn good. And that, that's my final judgment. Nice. Um, all right, uh, Langhorn. Um, uh, I wrote in my notes here that I really loved the narrative style. I loved... The, the splitting of the characters, like I said, I love that that whole idea of separating yourself and then that person becoming real and then reinviting that person into you and then losing it again um, when tragedy happens. I thought that was brilliant. I I appreciated a lot of the religious uh, stuff he put down the. The Greek myth stuff, maybe not so much because there's so much of it. I mean, Zeus had about like 350 kids, so it's it's a little much to try to understand all that stuff. Um, the movie, the way they they he portrayed the movie and the characters watching the movie, I thought was fascinating. I thought it was finally becoming a novel, but. The main problem I had is every promise is not fulfilled. He makes promises throughout this whole novel. Like, oh, look, this exciting thing is going to happen. And they box on it. And he he makes sure that that exciting thing doesn't happen. Uh, it's sort of a Dick's, I would call it an Achilles heel. Some people would call it a, a good style choice. But I say, uh, 
anytime you promise to me that there's going to be like an adventure and there is no adventure and you you make a two-year-old if any of you picture a two-year-old speaking in full sentences like sophie does and isn't freaked out you're you don't have an imagination because that kid should not have spoke like that and no one should have been like oh yeah take it in stride fuck it yeah this two-year-old you you know what two-year-olds look like babies and they do not speak that way and if a two-year-old spoke to me that way i'd punch it in the throat uh so uh you're punching two-year-olds now? I would punch a two-year-old in the throat if it spoke to me that way. <laughs> um, well, anyway, I'm, anyway, so the uh, my I'm precocious kids it, tucked away, I guess. I'm going to give it a, a three. Uh, I, I want to do uh, fuck, 2.5 uh, uh, glib two-year-olds out of five. Oh, well, well, I wasn't expecting it to be that low. Um, all right, so I'll go and then uh, we'll do Gil last. But um, I, you know, this book, it's interesting because I read it first like 20 years ago and I had a really great experience reading it because uh, at the time I I understood to a certain degree that Phil was writing a meta narrative, and I thought it was interesting what was going on but i had i did not know the details of his life i did a little bit well no i take that back i had read i had read um sutton at that point but i wasn't as immersed in it as i am now right reading it this time i the immersion was a little much and i was spending it took me out of the thing it shouldn't have uh because i think um, he's trying to for one of the things that Phil's doing is trying to force us out of the narrative. And so I think I think that's intentional. But in the end, um, I'm I vacillated between three pink laser beams of truth or four. And I'm going to go with four because I think what he set out to do, he accomplished and um, the only thing is I do think that there are some weaknesses. The only reason I can't give it a five is because um, of just how much I know about his life. And, and that's just my personal read on it. Is it a five-star novel? It may be. But for me, it's a four for my personal feeling. But I do think as an experiment, Phil pulled off what he needed to. And most importantly, he needed to fulfill his... Um, commitment to bantam and he did that right uh david gill i'm gonna give it four and a half stars because i don't think there's a perfect phil dick novel uh they're by their nature they can never be that's a good thing um all right the things i love about this novel number one the dialogue everything from scanner darkly on in dick's earth has this unique conversational cap the capturing of conversations um Lethem at his um uh keynote address at the 2012 dick fest called i think it called it shit talking essentially like the way in which all these characters are just shooting the shit that's it they're shooting the shit i love it it's the best dialogue in any dick novel um the characters 
I think uh, Adam Gopnik, when he wrote his uh, his piece about Phil Dick in The New Yorker, said that Phil Dick's characters were like a, a bunch of old magician's rabbits that he'd pull out of these hats. Not in this novel. These are great, round characters with really a great depth to them. Um, and I think that if you if you wanted to see what Dick aspired to as an author, this is the the book to to find it in. Not to say that it's um, I, I guess it's maybe not the book to start with <laughs> because it's uh, it's 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 complicated. I, I, lastly, I work at San Francisco State uh, University in the English department, and I've made friends with a colleague there, a uh, science fiction writer named Meg Shirky. Um, who has a PhD in, uh, you know, in poetry and who knows good literature in a way, frankly, that I don't. And uh, over the past probably five years, I've been slowly feeding Meg different Phil Dick books. And this was the one she said it's the best. And so in some ways, I just I, I agree with her. I agree that um, it's the fullest realization of what he was attempting as an author. But if you're into sci-fi, you should probably read Do Android Dream of Life. <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoy it. It really gave me, it gives me a sense for Dick that I can't get anywhere else. It gives me a feeling of Dick that I can't get anywhere else. And uh, so that's, those are the reasons why I think it's so fantastic. But I'm by no means an unbiased uh, observer in this. So I, I fully admit to, uh, wearing my biases on my sleeve <laughs> right right and i i appreciate that um i do think overall i think it's it it as a novel it says more about him than than all the others there you go that's a good all right uh, real quick anthony uh movie make it a movie oh geez um i don't want to i don't think that this would translate well enough to be to film, I think that this should exist in the format that it's in. I think a film would not do it justice, especially depending on who the director is. Well, they, that's my tried several opinion. times to make it a movie. So, starring Paul Giamatti as Dick. <laughs> yeah, no, he, I he actually, plays, yeah, I actually he plays R. Crumb. Writing about Dick. <laughs> yeah, I, I would prefer it just stay a book. Hmm. Yeah, now. But the assignment is, is if they forced us, they were like throwing a bunch of money at us and said, we'll let you make three stigmata, but first you got to make Valis. We would make Valis. <laughs> and, uh, no, David would write Valis and I would just edit the script. <laughs> <laughs> David can do all that. Um, yeah, I think Valis would be a hard one. It wouldn't be the top choice for me, but I think what you would have to do is you would you would have to make it a biopic basically and cut it down the middle of, you know, you would have to have the main, the person who's playing Phil also play horse lover fat. You would have to look at how to portray that difference and you would have to have the right director and actor and cast to do it. Who would, you'd want an actor and director, a team who was willing to dive into the material and dive into the exegesis and like, you know, an actor who is really game for like, you know, you guys are making a movie, right? Yeah, I know. But making the contradiction or doing the country or or the contradictions of Phil. Yeah. I think you could do it. I just think it would be, it would be weird. It would be hard to get money for it, but at the same time, like it wouldn't cost anything because you know, 
you could make it at a very reasonable budget. So, you know. I think you do it as a series, X style, X X Files style, where the Ripidan Society mm-hmm. one, you know, one mystery mm-hmm. at a time kind of thing. It keeps getting deeper and deeper. First they find a little few coincidences, then they see the movie, then blah blah blah, and it just keeps building. And they just take it and go with it, run with it, move away from the plot. The group of the friends. Yeah, the Ripidon Society is the is the main. You know, they're the main, and they each week is a different you know little adventure for them finding nice, out something nice. or whatever. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Make it a series like that, like a uh, the old Friday the Thirteenth kind of series. Um, I personally would just do it as the adventure. You know, yeah, you you have a bunch of characters you put them in that situation where they're finding God and they go and find God. I would have Charlie Kaufman write the script and direct it. Yeah, 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 that you're talking. Because he could definitely do that uh, that Charlie Kaufman thing with the split characters and and make it work. All right, uh, Anthony, before you go, do you have a dick-like suggestion? You know the answer to that. The answer's no. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, I'm out of here, guys. It was nice to see you, Gil. Take care. Rock on. Um, I'll see you guys around. Yep. All right. Love you, Anthony. Later. Love you. All right. Um, I do have a dick-like suggestion. Uh, do you guys have dick-like suggestion, Larry? I do, but uh, you go first. I, I, I have- forgot about it, so I got to look it up. Uh, so I have two dick-like suggestions, which are um, Virtual Zen by Ray Nelson. Um, and the reason, obviously, I read it because of his passing, and um, it was his last novel. It was published in 1996, but it was clearly written in the late 80s because it includes jokes about Dan Quayle being the president. Um, and so it's very clearly written in the, in the late 80s. Um, one of the things I like about this novel is, is about a guy who becomes extremely famous pop star playing a toy flute. And it is very clearly written by a guy who is not hip anymore, trying to write about a hip future. And I kind of love how anachronistic hmm. the coolness of it is. Um, there are also very Philip K. Dick moments like you know, people telling their doors to go screw themselves when they asked to be open, you know, to open. Of course, Phil would have had the people not have enough money to get into the door. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Ray Nelson's Virtual Zen, it's about, uh, it's also basically about AI music generation, which is a very hot topic now. And hot topic. Yeah, so in in the novel, the the son of a very popular artist is told that he has to inherit inherit doing his dad's musical career because his dad dies, and then um, they're like, it's okay, we can generate through artificial intelligence all the music, you just have to show up in mini vanilla. Um and so it's very hot topic. So that's Virtual Zen by Ray Nelson. And the cover is hilarious. And it was published by a short-lived Avon publishing sci-fi line called Avon Nova. And, yeah, so it's interesting. And then the other one is Galaxies by Barry N. Maltzberg. 
And the reason why I wanted to mention that here is because he does a very similar trick to Valus in Galaxies. Galaxies is about a pilot of a starship in the 40th century who falls into a black hole and is communicating with a science fiction author telling her story, i.e. Barry Maltzberg, right? And this was republished recently by friend of the podcast, David Harlan Wilson's AOP, Antiopedias Press. So you can get a new edition of it. And I recently recorded a bonus or a episode of Postcards from a Dying World with with Professor Wilson and James Reich, who wrote the foreword for it, talking about galaxies. So if you read it and then come over to that podcast, that'll be episode 101 of Postcards from a Dying World. So those are my two dick-like suggestions. Langhorn. Damn it. Uh, Gil, do you have one? Well, yeah, he's I got a couple. I'm going to recommend uh, Brett Easton Ellis's Glamorama. I'm not going to recommend Brett Easton Ellis, uh, <laughs> but Glamorama is a really interesting novel that takes uh, very, what is it, uh, models and serial killers and kind of weaves them together over the course of the thing. Um, the other one, there's two more. I probably mentioned these at other times I've been on the podcast, but one is the hit, the uh, the future on another timeline, which is a recent sci-fi novel by Annalee Newitz about a group of girls uh, who travel through time to stop the uh, evil uh, patriarchal oppressors from the past, uh, removing women's rights through the timeline. And it's wonderful the way in which it has all these details about time travel and ultimately revolves around the emotional details of the characters' lives. The last one is a mainstream novel called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit that came out in the 1950s, which Cleo uh, told me to read because it was a big influence on Phil Dick. And when I read it, I couldn't believe how much it, it his style and his basic worldview were encapsulated there. It's a much more um, hallmark, happy ending kind of a novel, but the way in which the characters are described as washing dishes on the floors, kind of sagging and, and deteriorating, and there's entropy everywhere is uh, really irrelevant. So those are my three. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Good ones. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't find the one I was going to do, but uh, I will do Doki Doki Literature Club. Uh, which is a game that is about a literature club, literally. And it turns out that it's a meta game, and you are in a horror scenario with these characters. Some of them exist inside your computer. Some of them are not real. Some of them are real. You are real, and sometimes you're not real. And uh, they have two versions. There's a free version, which is good enough, and they have a pay version, which has more content in it. But you uh, you'd never know what's real, what's happening is real or not. You're either in a dream, out of a dream, in the game, or out of the game. You just don't know the whole time. And I, I think that that holds the vibe of PKD's whole, whole deal. Awesome. That sounds interesting. Uh, another game. Who would have ever thought it, uh, Langhorn? 
Um, all right, Mr. Tweed, thank you for your dick-like suggestion. Um, but I think with that, that's um, everything. Uh, Mr. Gill, what have you got going on in the hopper? You got your band playing any shows? Anything you want to? Oh, my band, Dr. Monsters, playing a show at San Francisco State on February 23rd. I think that's it. <laughs> Not dick related, but uh, we're asshole. We're dicks. So there, there's that. <laughs> and uh, uh, any uh, well, and we're going to encourage you to work on that biography or to work on. Oh, your Ray show. Nelson. Yeah, he's got to be proven wrong, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I think Sutton did a pretty good job, but uh, you know. But a legit can't be done, can it? It's tough. It's a tough, it's tough. It's a tough bio. I mean, it's easier than writing somebody about somebody who's been dead for 400 years, to my mind. I I don't know. Well, yeah, maybe it's harder, <laughs> right? But there's there's more information. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's all conflicting. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we want to encourage you to write that book, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us for Valis. Um yes. I think uh, you gave some pretty awesome and valuable insights, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, this was a very interesting, uh, interesting book. That's for sure. Oh, I got to do the preview right for the next one since Anthony's not here. Um, what's next, um, Larry? Divine invasion. The divine invasion. Oh, that's right, and I don't have that ready. Pretty no sure. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. What if, the, what if the Messiah were an illegal alien coming from another planet? <laughs> there. See, we did it. Divine Invasion is the sequel to Valis. Exactly. Okay, that's better. Uh, number than two in the Valis trilogy. Yeah, book two in the Valis trilogy that never totally actually it, was meant to be a trilogy. But have you read it? Uh, this will be my first time. Ah, because there's a lot of the Jewish... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. I did read it. I did ah. read it after I read Valis. And the funny thing was, is I listened to Valis on audiobook the first time and then read Divine Invasions on paperback. And so it was a weird, surreal experience because I went from audio to... Well, your interest in Jewish storytelling and all that kind of stuff, is that's probably its most... Uh, finds its most realized form is in the Divine Invasion. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right, so on that note, we'll see everybody with Divine Invasions. Hopefully we won't have as much of a wait between episodes next time. Yeah, be paranoid. Uh, yeah, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. All paranoid. <laughs>